Welcome to No Challenges, remaining live from Melbourne the day after the Australian Open 2019 has ended. I'm Ben Rothenberg. You're Courtney Nguyen. We're done. We're done. Australia done. No, it only works for Wimbledon. Australia done. Yeah, it doesn't really work. There's there's no way to get that through. (laughs) But the tournament is over. Overall, how how are you feeling at the the end of this uh, Hmm. Grand Slam? I feel like this Grand Slam is not as exhausting as it is. The last three days are actually pretty easy because you only get one singles match a day. Yeah. And so it kind of fades out in a way that makes it, you don't feel as crushed on the day after as maybe other tournaments, but it was a lot. It was a lot. I mean, you're right. I mean, definitely once it hit kind of the quarterfinals or the second day of the quarterfinals, it seemed like everything kind of, the the breaks kind of uh, were hit for the tournament. Um, But uh, but yeah, I mean, still definitely trying to process, not necessarily what happened, because I think that in a lot of ways what happened throughout the tournament, a lot of it made sense, but just trying to process and understand what it all means going forward, kind of the throw ahead storylines and and how this sets the table for 2019. That's kind of really where my mind is occupied at the moment. Well, I think it, I mean, we seem like we have pretty coherent answers because we left both the players who are number one today on Monday are the ones who won this tournament. Yeah. In Novak Djokovic and Naomi Osaka. Uh, so that just takes, again, who was 72 during the Australian Open last year. So quite a glow up, as people of her generation would say, for Naomi Osaka. Do you want to, do you want to go general dudes or, or, or ladies first? What do you think makes more sense? Uh, maybe let's just knock the guys out first. Right. Guys, Novak Djokovic wins the final. I was openly talking to people about how I wasn't all that excited for this final. Which, you really were. <laughs> which got people, people were like distressed and thought that was blasphemous, really, that like there's number one versus number two, Djokovic and all. But like I've seen probably most of their 53 matches before this. And I just thought, and I did not, looking back, I do, it was okay at the time, but looking back, their 2012 final here was absurd. And I just like did not need to sign up for that ride again. And I was delighted to find out that I did not get that ride. I actually wound up enjoying the match way more than I thought I would because it was decisive and different in a way that didn't feel like a repeat of something we'd seen before, really, at least in a Grand Slam context in their rivalry, with Novak Djokovic utterly just drubbing the doll, 3-2-3. Three, three. Can't call that a gentleman's score. That's just a beatdown in a Grand Slam final. It was rude. It, it, was, it was rude and, and decisive. In a good way. I don't mean that. <laughs> no, it was way. obviously like you want to be rude to your opponent. You want to you know <laughs> blast them off the court. And it was not super competitive, especially on return. It all couldn't make any dents. I think only got like one break point in the match. Only won 13 points on return in the whole in a three set match. match. In three sets. That's crazy. It's like nothing. For against not against somebody who's not Karlovich. You know, who's not, you know, somebody. And yeah. I mean, like, I mean, two things just coming off of your point. First of all, yes, it definitely felt as though this was like a song this was hallelujah, but covered in a new and different way, as opposed to like everybody just trying to play it like, oh, this is a great song. So let's just keep making it this maudlin, quiet, acoustic thing. And like, it's like Novak went in and like did a completely different remix and made you reimagine this entire rivalry. On like thrash guitar. (laughs) Exactly. Which we were like, okay, (laughs) you know, better than the Weezer cover album. Um, (laughs) Burn. But um, so that's one thing that I thought was was really cool about, not cool, but nice about the final because 
like Ben, it was a little bit going into it. I was like, look, I've seen this show. I do not need to see the show again, regardless of it being lasting five hours and everybody's going to call it an epic. Don't really care for it. I mean, my, the rivalries like that I enjoy typically weirdly, as much as I hate to admit it, involve Roger, Roger versus Rafa, Roger versus Andy, Roger versus Novak. I like those so much better. Those matches so much better and find them far more contrast. Yeah. Then when it's, I mean, Novak Rafa is definitely the second, best i guess of those because no reckon is an absolute trash fire plus um but, but um but yeah so i wasn't really looking forward looking forward to it um and it ended up being being all right and um you know it was yeah it was definitely a reimagined version of that rivalry obviously a reimagined version that rafa fans are not going to be too pleased about and rafa certainly isn't going to be pleased about but one that i mean i guess ben because okay True story. I was asleep for about a set and a half um, of getting because my nap went a little bit long. I was channeling my inner Petra and I was napping. Uh-huh. Um, but but when you cite the stat about the 13 return points won, yeah. and obviously, as you said, Novak isn't Karlovich, or those points not being won because Novak was just dominant through the rally, or was he serving particularly well? He like, was serving was well. It? He was hitting his spots really well on his okay. serve. And Tom Parada, the Wall Street Journal, did a story about uh, Novak's service motion and changing and getting better and going back to what worked for him before and things like that. So you should all check that out. Hi, Tom. Hey, Tommy. And um, yeah, but I mean, really, it was just Novak also just doing everything right on return. And what Rafa said in defeat, and we should point out, I did not expect Rafa to make this final at all. Yes. As much as people were like, oh, it's what you expect, one versus two, so the final we all wanted. No. It was like, I did, when we did our draw show, I was not picking Rafa to make the semis even. I thought... And Kevin Anderson had a much better shot of making it out of that quarter of the draw. This had been his first tournament official matches in months. You since know, the U.S. Coming, Open. Yeah, since U.S. Open, coming off injury, hard court. I mean, all the different reasons. And obviously your your revised tweets every yeah. time he pulls out of a hard court tournament. This is just not what he does anymore is, is make finals of hard court events. No, I mean, he just hasn't been reliably finishing tournaments. And this was actually the first time he suffered a regulation hard court mat loss, hard court since match Toronto? loss. No, he won Toronto. So since oh, um, since uh, 2017, at some point, I don't know. Yeah. I can't tell you exactly when, but in 2017, I guess when he lost to Golfan in the uh, uh, World Tour Finals. But he was kind of hobbling through that match. But he did finish that match. Uh, yeah, it was it was a bizarre tournament from Rafa in that in, in all the best ways. He looked great. He looked he was thrashing people. He looked unstoppable. He was barely losing games. I mean, he was like having Kvitova esque numbers of. Only losing two point something. Two point six seven, I think. Yeah, two point seven or something for for him through six matches, which is incredible, especially on the men's side where people hold, and it's much harder to get those lopsided set scores than it is sometimes on the women's side. And he was coming in off of that absolute. I mean, I don't think there is a Christian word that can be said about what he did to Stefano Sissipas in the semifinals. That was brutal. (laughs) Like, and he looked utterly dominant and just broke Stefano Sitsipas's brain, will, heart, guts, all of it. It was an evisceration. It was an evisceration and an ethering, if we will. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, he looked, he looked so which, good. Which but... made me count up his chances more sure. in the finals than maybe I should have. And I think also the matchups in those, I mean, because he beat Sitsipas in two different finals last year in the finals True. of Toronto. And he had been getting closer, though. This Barcelona. was more of a blowout. This, this was in one... the wrong direction for yeah. Sitsipas, for sure. But, um, and then Puy also got blown out by Djokovic in the other semifinal. And we'll get to Puy and Sitsipas each a little bit later. But 
they, they, it looked like, oh, we're both playing great, but I was also telling people, like, we don't have great data on either of them being challenged. I mean, Djokovic had a tough fourth round against Medvedev, who's a weird player. That was kind of a weird match, and it looks like Djokovic, like, kind of tweaked his back near the end and was looking kind of wonky through that. Um, but we didn't really know, and then once it came pedal to metal, Djokovic was way better, won 12 of the first 13 points, and never really looked back in this match. And, yeah, that's, that's what it was. And afterwards, Rafa sort of was saying excuse making is fine because you know you lose you get to make excuses i don't context never begrudge, I, don't think, right. I don't call it an excuse i call it context i've said this a gazillion times Fair. there's two reasons like there's one to say an excuse is like this is the reason i lost the match context is here's a situation and you know to explain why i wasn't able to bring my best and yeah. i think that rafa provided context rafa said that he because of his injuries he said he'd been able to practice doing offense, but not defense, I think was what he said, basically. Which oh, makes sense. Yeah, I get it. It's what this match looked like. I mean, he wasn't able to match Djokovic's defense, for sure. And usually he is a great defense Just if you player. can't, if, you, if you're physically a little bit compromised, you're probably going to be able to spend more time standing on the baseline and smacking balls and hitting serves and than is, playing pure defensive tennis. And, and it matches. is true. The kind of Rafa tennis he was doing in this tournament was not typical Rafa. I mean, he had spent less time on court getting to the quarterfinals than any of the other eight guys who made it, yeah. which is just the most un-Nadal stat imaginable. It was, it was reminiscent of that U.S. Open title run where he had that serve and, all, and just... In was, 2010, yeah. yeah. Um, and you're like, oh, okay. I mean, it was definitely a different Rafa. And, uh, but you're right. I mean, I, I, do, I do think both of the finals, the men's final and the women's final, that they are both... What was so intriguing to the extent that... And I say this as somebody who wasn't looking forward to the men's final, but to the extent that it was intriguing to me... Was simply because there were still X's and O's, and or not X's and O's, but still some um, unknowns in terms of like you knew tactically that Novak probably had, you know, Rafa's card. So mm-hmm. just mono e mono, Novak was going to win. But then Rafa was playing so well, and it had been a while since they had played against each other on a hard court, like all that sort of stuff. Whereas like, and then on the women's side, where it was like a first time meeting, and Petra hadn't been tested, and Naomi had, and you know, but you just really didn't know how the chips were going to fall. You know, um, so I, I felt like both finals, the men's and the women's, it felt very even at the start. And obviously the men's final didn't end up that way, but there was no reason to not think that it was even from the start, given what we had seen, I guess. Yeah, I think so. And a lot of people were picking Nadal, who I talked to, were like, mm. Nadal's looked better in this tournament. And he had had the more dominating scorelines for sure. But what I like about the men's result is that it sort of, it really does set a clear, emphatic statement being Novak is way above the rest of y'all. Yeah. And Novak is going for four in a row Grand Slams for the second time Novak in his career. Uh, like Serena, who did it twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be very impressive if Novak can do that too uh, by winning the French Open. And that would be where you'd think Rafa would be able to put up the most resistance. So after having not been that excited for this Australian Open final for them, I'm now preemptively, if it happens, very excited for their French Open final where maybe there could be some history on the line. I've seen a lot of Rafa stopping Novak in Paris before, but with the question marks around Rafa and the exclamation points around Novak lately, I think it could make a, a pretty interesting interrobang. Yeah, no, I, 100%. And I saw a tweet from, I, I think, our good friend Scholes. Uh, who, hey, Shola. Uh, who said, you know, hot take, if, if, uh, if Novak completes the Novak slam twice in his career, is he the GOAT? Oh goats, oh, goat talk. <laughs> but you know, I mean, but I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that we should answer that. But it is an interesting. I mean, if he does end up winning the French Open, 
I mean, that's a whole nother like angle at f- which to go to, uh, to introduce into the goat conversation. He'd be the first of the dudes to win two career slams, even right to win because each because Rafa's only won one. Sorry, Rafa's only won one Australia, and Rogers only won one French, and yeah. Novak's only won one French at this point because Rafa wins all of them. Um, and so yeah, it would be interesting to see if if he can get there. You know, Mary Carillo on our pre-tournament show talked about if Novak was going to get to twenty. And I sort of just will take the under on 20 instinctively because so much can happen between 14 and 20, now 15 and 20, but still it's a long way to go between 15 and 20. And seeing how players like Serena, even who you think things are inevitable for, life comes at you, you have unexpected maternity leave, you have unexpected, you know, you get to a bunch of finals and don't win them or whatever happens to her. You know, it's 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 hard winning this many more Grand Slams, and so I won't take that for granted. And maybe, you know, maybe maybe Novak doesn't even make the French Open final. Maybe he loses to team or to Zverev or to whoever or to Puy or I don't know. Except that at the end of the day, though, don't you think? Okay, yeah, I mean, that's that's a, that's separately a, a French Open question. And the reason why we've set this French Open apart is because of Rafa and his dominance at Roland Garros. But at the end of the day, when you look at the dominant players now and, and you say, even if you you don't try to lock it down to big four, but you say... You know, Roger, Rafa, Novak, Delpo, Lavrinka, uh, Sasha, whoever. Like, whoever people think are, like, the top five players in the game. I mean, who doesn't give Novak more of a chance to win at every single major yeah. than in the rest of the field? Like, it's not even, to me, in my mind, close. Okay, it's like, so it's like, okay, Rafa, you might get the French again, 100%. Um, that would be what I would expect, I suppose. And that is the respect that he's earned. Mm-hmm. But but then Wimbledon's three weeks later. And Novak is totally going to have a shot at crack at that. U.S. Open, back in Australia. like, And then once you start thinking about it that way, the five doesn't seem that far away. He's still only 31. Right. I mean, so in... He's in, the youngest of the four. Yes, yeah, true. By a week. But uh, the, he's the youngest of the four. And who's coming? Nope. Nobody's coming. And that's... Well, let's, segue. Ta- let's talk about who's coming in the semifinals. We'll start with, uh, you were very excited about both these semifinalists, I actually. I was. Greatest Grand Slam ever. <laughs> talk to us about first, I guess, with Lucas Puy. We'll start with him. Why you were so uh, chuffed, as they would say, maybe here, especially in England, uh, to see Lucas Puy in the semifinals. Because he's a nice guy. It's as simple as that. I mean, I don't think that my, when it comes to my ATP fandom, it really doesn't go get very complicated. I just... I like Andy because he's a good dude, like through and through. Luca, good dude, through and through. Stefanos, like as far as I know him, and I don't know him very well, but everything about him amuses me and is endearing to me. And I think that he's a good dude. Like I, I just do. I think that he's he he means well. Um, people can point to like, oh, he yells at ball kids. And th- okay, he's twenty years old. Like calm down. Like he'll it'll get out of his system. But like at his core, I think he's a good dude. So. Yeah, it was just really nice to see those two get their moment and get their semifinal. Obviously, Luca Pui now being coached by Amelie Moresmo. I mean, that's just, I mean, I don't. How does she keep choosing, like, my boys? <laughs> how does that happen? Because she's awesome, because she sees truth, probably. <laughs> so, you know. I was, so. <laughs> I, I wrote a story with him before the tournament started, yeah. and I was legitimately and worried. Like, I don't know. I was yeah. like, because Luca, I was in Hotman Cup with Luca, and he was. He went, uh, he was in the tougher boys, wait, no, who did he play? Who's in his group? He was in the group with 
Oh, he lost to Ferrer. I mean, he wasn't playing great at Hopman Cup, to be clear. He had the tougher group because he wasn't in the Serena half. The, the, the U.S. half was well tougher. Serena was in the tough, easier half for the women. On the men's side, I'm trying to remember. He had Zverev. Oh, fair. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, he lost, yeah, he lost to Ebden and to, and to Ferrer. And okay, Zverev. That's... And I wasn't I wasn't especially inspired by any of that. And neither was Amelie, to be clear. <laughs> and I was doing, I wanted to do a story on them and I was like, we gotta get it done first round. I cannot wait for this. And lo and behold, like things came together for him. And Luca came, from what I can tell, like pretty close to like quitting or stopping. He was miserable last year. Yeah, he really was. And he, you know, with uh, taking some time off and sort of coming back to tennis a little bit on his own terms, even if it, you know, was a short break, it was still a break that was meaningful to him. And what was his record last year? Because obviously he had that great year and he beat Rafa yeah. at the U.S. Open and he had like... You 20, know. That was 2016. So he made 2016 he made quarters of Wimbledon and the U.S. Open beating okay. Rafa fourth round. Yeah. 2017 he slipped a little bit and then 20, was 2018 from like Indian Wells on he just did not play well. A losing record from Indian Wells yeah. on basically. Playing a pretty heavy schedule and just yeah was not enjoying tennis at all and just seemed unhappy. But with Amelie he's been happy and he's been... I did the story, and people obviously read this. Some people read the story. Some people, you know, don't read New York Times stories because of paywalls or whatever, which is fine. But Do you guys um, not have the thing where if you get a direct link, people can read it? No, that's Wall Street Journal. Oh, Wall Street Journal. Okay. But we have you get 10 free articles a month. You do. So if you're, if you're hitting 10 regularly, maybe just get a subscription, you guys. I don't I know. I have a subscription. Thank you. That I pay for. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. But, <laughs> Happy to do it. But, but, I, but when Luca talked about Amelie on court in the press conference, and people heard videos, and his very bedroomy voice he's the nicest voice he really does um actually we stand look up we <laughs> actually i'll put in some audio from my interview with him in perth right here and then what i guess what was it about her that you had, had wanted well uh i didn't know her very well uh until then uh i knew who she was i knew how good she was as a player uh she's she's a champion she won majors uh a lot of titles yeah she 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 uh, she has been a great uh, great help with uh, with Andy. They made a, a great job together. So she she was uh, also very good on the on the chair and as a Fed Cup captain. Mm -hmm. They also they almost won the the Fed Cup title. So um, in my mind, she was the perfect person to um, yeah to be with me on tour and to to bring me her experience her. Mm -hmm her skills and uh, all she knows about uh, about tennis about the good state of mind good, about everything so yeah. did you um did you know that she was did your manager know that she was available because you would say like the davis cup job i know what she left now but did she leave the job first and then come to you or did you, she come to you first and then i don't know the order no, in which I, that happened i came to her we talked on the on monday afternoon after the davis cup mm -hmm. uh, and then she, she told me that she was uh interested in doing this uh, but she had to to think about it with the family with the Davis Cup captain uh, and then uh, and then finally she, she decided to uh, to stop being the Davis Cup captain not not to stop not to start the Davis yeah. Cup and then uh, to be only with me so does that give you a lot of confidence or, or faith that you know she she it's a big it's a big step for her to, to yeah, leave so a job to yeah and she was gonna make history as the first french you know woman to be captain and and now she says eh, I, I choose lucas instead it, it feel, it feel, yeah. I, would, I mean it would show that she has a great deal of belief in you i would think yeah uh that's that's good that's what uh 
also I want to to have with me someone who believes in me and believe we can uh, we can go uh, very far together. So uh, yeah. that was uh, I was happy about this, and I, w I was happy that she she was very committed to my uh, my to my goals, my project, and then so uh, yeah, I'm just very happy that she's part of it now, and we we can uh, we can work together. We can. Um, have the best results possible. Yeah. So. When um, when she was hired by Andy, it was seen as a very sort of you know outside the box choice. He wasn't not someone who'd been ever coached men's tennis before, and and I don't know if for you did it still feel that way? Did it still feel like you're making an unusual choice, or do you think you're just oh I'm coaching I'm picked the coach who used to coach Andy Murray, and that's not so oh, strange. Oh no, that's you know? not not what I, I thought at the beginning. Uh, for me, it doesn't matter if it's a man, a woman. Uh, grandfather or mother I don't, I don't care as long as they they know what they're talking about uh, it's sports women's sports men's sports at the end you dealing with the same same stuff on the court uh, mentally is the same stuff so technically she knows she knows tennis uh, she knows what I need to do on the court to to be to be better to be good um, so for me that's what is important woman or man doesn't matter good morning good morning <laughs> No, but 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 Luca, um, it was really good to see him get rewarded, and he plays a kind of un, not very flashy game at all. Just very solid, very uh, thoughtful, very smart, using a lot more variety mm -hmm. under Moresmo than he had been doing last year for sure. And it, it play, kind of game that Djokovic was able to eat up in a way. Someone's like Moresmo gets great results, but let's remember her record against Djokovic. Yeah, was not great with Andy either. And so fair enough. You know, you beat everybody but one person, you're doing okay. And someone said. Also, a close uh, Luca watcher on Twitter said that uh, had the semifinals been flipped and it was mm, Djokovic versus yes. Sitsipas and Pui versus Nadal, it would have much more competitive yes. matches, which I fully sign on to. I, I, I agree with I believe that 100%. Because Sitsipas beat Nadal, sorry, Sitsipas beat Djokovic in Toronto. Well, and, 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 and this, you know, underlines a point that I know I definitely make all the time on the women's tour, but I absolutely believe that it 100% applies on the men's tour, especially right now. Matchups matter. Yeah. Like, you know, like just because you think somebody's a better tennis player than somebody else, it actually doesn't necessarily. I mean, yes, okay, sometimes it'll dictate, and, and oftentimes it'll dictate, but that little 15%, 20% swing in win predictability. Um, <laughs> Shout out, by the way, to an, an Amanda Anisimova, who got a 9% chance of winning her match against Sabalenka, oh, and Danielle Collins, who got an 8% chance of winning against Angelique Kerber and lost just two games. This is why we don't do predictive stats. Not November 2016, in we sports, retired them. In, 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 in tennis, it's, it's so hard. And I say this as somebody who like works very closely in analytics and the analytics team and the SAP team and that that sponsors WTA and and we're constantly trying because that's the the next frontier is actually coming up with predictive tennis stats, but you can't just create a formula and just call it a, a predictive stat and then run it and be wrong so badly. It just, I just doesn't work. Again, I just think ever since November twenty sixteen, if you tell yes. someone, oh, Chilich has a twenty nine percent chance of winning this match. What does that mean? And what does that mean? Like, honestly, I understand people being like, oh, you dumbass, like, do it 10 times and it'll win three of them. Like, okay, but when you're actually sitting there watching a match. There's not 10 matches. It tells There's you one of them. It tells you he probably won't win. Then it kind of, it's, I don't know. I just don't think it's useful. <clears throat> I just really don't think so. Well, and that's, yeah, that, that's the 2016 lesson, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know, like 1% is still a chance. Yeah. Is the bottom line. It, it's just, you know, maybe it's almost kind of like an upset scale. Maybe you could maybe, maybe say, like, Anisimova beating Sabalenka is a big upset because. Yeah. 
but that comes later as opposed to like on the front end when you say she has a 9% chance of winning. That That's just, and how does that sell the sport? Like, why would I watch a match that maybe I'm just like casually tuning into and then you flash up the win predictor and it's like, yo, this is going to be a blowout. And I was like, well, I'm just going to go watch MASH. <laughs> MASH. MASH. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's Pui, Lucas Pui, um, making his first semifinal of the Grand Slam. and We stand. We love. Good result. And, there's and Steph- got good wins. Yeah. And then Stefano Sitsifas. We did a whole did an episode with Vicky on the show called the Love Vicky. Steve the Talk. Which Steve I was the Talk. Very, good... It should be the title of his podcast, honestly. His, po- his podcast is called A Greek Abroad, but Steve the Talk Steve is the a talk. much better name. Yeah, you should, you should message him and tell him I that. will tell him that. Um, but Tsitsipas, yeah. Um, it's just, it was interesting seeing Tsitsipas go, like, super mainstream here. And, like, people, like, getting questions from the AP about his YouTube channel. Which has been, like, I've had the bell on for a long time, you guys. Yes, you have. Like, I have been very up on Tsitsipas' YouTube for, since, um, since May. Since like, I feel like you, you to Stefanos is me to Naomi. In terms I think of, so. In terms of early adopting, like, a player that has a great game and, and, and yeah. it's fun, uh, raw, but also has a personality that not everybody completely and, gets and has a wavelength that you can tune into yes that's like they have their own wavelength way that you're like yeah. i understand this frequency and what you're offering for the most part i don't totally understand this house by any stretch and he continues continues to uh, surprise and astound me in various <laughs> ways but he um but he does his things his own way in this way that seeing it get recognition and when he told people to subscribe to his youtube uh, after winning his quarterfinal against Batista Gut, which was a huge match for him Massive. to back up that Federer win. And it was a Batista Gut was fading within the fourth set tiebreak, but not really before then. That's just a good veteran win. Oh, yeah. Like Batista Gut is like, he's a, he's a Ferrer type. He's a stopper. You got to get through those guys. And then it's like, and that those are the wins I think to me, like probably resonate in the locker room. Like, oh shit, like you beat quality. Like you beat a guy who like, doesn't let not up flashy. not flashy but you have to be able to solve it and and get through it and a guy that doesn't give you things like you got to earn it that's the, uh, yeah rba is that guy so it's a pass i haven't checked what it is now but it's a pass basically as i told you subscribe to his youtube channel uh and have when he had like fourteen thousand followers which have been pretty slow to come for him i mean like considering yeah. it's how much effort he puts into youtube and how it's way behind and i think youtube numbers are just smaller always than Instagram numbers or Twitter numbers, just in terms of the number of people who are actively following. Subscribing, people. yes. Views, no, because people go in. YouTube is effectively Google for yeah, video, right? You be. just go in, and I want to see everything that that's related to Stefano Sitsipas. Like people should Google that, but maybe people didn't ever think yeah. to run that search before this week. And when you first started showing me the Sitsipas stuff, like about last summer. I still remember, like, a lot of the videos, especially some of my favorite ones, had, like, 1,500 views. Like, Oh, yeah, they were no de- definitely, was... like, definitely under 5,000. Yeah, yeah. And I was yeah. like, why are people not... And this was, like, after he had... Or the... After or during Toronto. Yeah. And I was like, why are people not... But this is... um Like, Ben knows. I'm, like, thoroughly impressed by Stefano Sitsipas' videographer. Right? We were watching his... I was illic- like, don't play tennis. Like, go to USC and get a film degree and go. His illicit Sydney drone video, yeah. if you can find it, is really impressive. It's amazing. Stefano Sitsipas has a drone, like, bought drone. Yeah, he has several drones. He has several drones <laughs> and, like, flew them in areas that probably he wasn't supposed to be able to do, but then eventually cut that video. And some of the shots are, like, truly cinematic, like... I mean, if he took them, and obviously in our world of catfishing and all that, I'm not saying that he hasn't, but I'm just saying, so long as that was not, that is actually footage that he took on that drone. I think they are. I, I think so too. 
I'm thoroughly blown away. I'm talking the the Roger Deakins of the ATP tour, which isn't really. I mean, that's a really low bar. No one knows the rest of the ATP, But he's. It was really impressive. So there you go. Thank, uh, it's possible. It's impressive. Anyway, and he went from like fourteen thousand subscribers to like over a hundred thousand before his next. Match. Wow, a hundred thousand. So like, yeah, so he, he must get, be so, so he, stoked. So that's what he told me. His one of his main goals was. Um, when I interviewed him about YouTube in Washington last year, is that he wanted to get 100,000 subscribers because then you get, like, YouTube sends you, like, a little, like, plaque. Like, a little, oh. it's called, it's like, a silver button with, like, a play button, oh a little gosh. silver play button, and he really wanted one. And oh, so Steph. he got it. So oh, he left with the trophy after all. Oh, Steph and his ambition. That's, an, that, that, I mean, we'll get, we'll end up talking about Naomi later, but that's, I think, I mean, as much as, like, I see them in very many ways as in running in parallel, that's something that's like a very distinctive difference between the two of them. Cause like in contrast, Naomi budding amateur photographer has her own private photography Instagram that she doesn't advertise. Like literally it has like 150 follow. like there's nobody follows it. <clears throat> and I'm pretty sure she would freak the fuck out if people started following it. Like she, she would just be like, Is it locked? no, it's open. Mm. It's open, but it's like, you'd have to know how to find it. Um, but yeah, like, you know, like, like I, I was actually quite surprised when Steph did the whole, like, subscribe to my YouTube channel. I was like, oh, okay. Like, that's how, you you know, which is a little bit different. No, like, he, he appreciates. He, he, which he, he puts yeah. a lot of work in his And they videos. had just played, like, clips of his videos on the Jumbotron of sure. Labor during his interview. It was a whole thing they had ready for he him. He puts a lot of work. I mean, a lot of effort into yeah. it. So I, I respect that, yeah. you know. I'm, I got I got love for an artist. Yeah, for sure. And his, and he, and his artistry beat Federer in the fourth round. That was sort of... I think probably the most sort of like um, engaging match of the men's yeah, tournament. Yeah, I think that'll be the result that people remember from this tournament. Like yeah. the 2019 Australian Open is the one where Steph Sissipas like beat Roger Federer. Yeah. Um, Federer never yeah. broke. Speaking of yeah. returning, he had 12 break points and didn't convert any of them. So, I mean, I guess we didn't do a mid-tournament show. No, we haven't done anything. So. We did a Sissipas show, but that's it. Thoughts on Raj. Now he's going to play, he said he's going to play clay. I've heard, yeah, I want to, I never, yeah, he said that in French. I haven't seen the exact quotes on that, but people seem to be very confident in that pronouncement. Okay. Um, yeah, you know. Was this a bad loss? What, what, over what 12 is, on break points is bad. That's bad. He was bad. over 12? Yeah, I just said that. He was over 12 on break points. I didn't know he had that many. He had 12. I think like eight of them were in the second set, which he lost. And it just more seemed like, and since the possible was very much just like beating him in his own game. Like they do play fairly similar when Sitsipas play, Sitsipas can play a Federer-ish tactics and be aggressive in attacking, or he can kind of retreat and be a little mm. more behind the baseline-ish, and this was him being aggressive. And, yeah, for Roger, it just seemed dispiriting, like, honestly. It, or, I mean, and Roger has talked, he talked open, pretty openly in Perth about not guaranteeing this wouldn't be his last year, basically. Sure. Yeah. And just sort of saying, dispelling, which I'm really glad he did this, because I've never bought into this theory, Really dispelling all this Tokyo Olympics talk, which people keep putting on him, being like, oh, Uniqlo, he's going to play Tokyo Olympics. They really want to play Tokyo Olympics. And he's like, I never said that. I don't know where that came from. Like, that's not a priority okay. for me. So, yeah. Like, he pushed back on the Tokyo Olympics thing for sure. And so it is very possible that Roger, and the other thing I was saying, and he said in Perth, in English, I understood this clearly, like, oh, I'm not, um, I haven't decided on clay yet. And part of me does think if he's going to play clay, it means it's his last year. Because he wants to go one. He more wants to do a farewell to tour. Do a yeah, the fuller fa to... farewell tour and, and have done everything again. And so maybe if he does play clay, and again we'll see. And if his results in 
Indy Wells, Miami. And if he wins Indy Wells and or Miami, maybe he rethinks this. And it's sure. like, wait, I'm actually, pl- I'm still like, you know, can contend for Wimbledon or whatever. And I'm not just doing a goodbye thing. And I think Roger doesn't really need a goodbye thing. He, I remember him saying during, um, and I'm getting more morbid about his career maybe than you intended for me to, but I remember him That's saying during one of Leighton Hewitt's many different retirements, which none of which stuck. I'm going. Um, that he, um, he did not want to do a big farewell thing. He did not want to go to town, city to city, and have people been like, "Oh, we're gonna miss you so much. Thank you for being here. Here's a, you know, a key to the city and a chair by one of our local artisan wood carvers." And he, he didn't want none of that. <laughs> like, he wanted none of that. Um, but I don't know. I hope. I hope people. I hope you know. He's very much. Roger is so beyond playing with house money. Yeah. He has beyond <laughs> nothing to prove, and I hope that Federer fans understand that. And I think Federer fans, for the most part. I mean, all three of the major three fan groups, Murray's are his own kind of people. But How dare you? Sure. How dare you? Even four. We're you just to, in the corner eating pace, Even man. four, if you want to include Serena fans, it's like the big four fan groups. Okay. Which I think okay. maybe they That's are, probably true. Yeah, they probably yeah. are the fourth group. Um, the Federer fans, I think, have this almost, and Serena fans have this too, in a different way. But they're the least, like, insecure. They don't, they never feel, there's never yeah. any inferiority complex yeah. with them. They always are like, they have the most sort of calm and they can be smug or whatever, but they're guys winning on the scoreboard. Like you're Roger Federer. Why would you feel like you have anything to prove? And that's my fault on Roger. And from one of my, his tone in uh, Perth made it really seem like, and I do find a difference in this. It wasn't like, I want to stop. Like, I want to stop doing this. It was more like, why, would, why would I keep going? Which is different. Like. That's different, and that There's, worries me a little bit, because it's... I've already, he's already done every, I've already done everything. He's already done everything, but his narrative had always been, at least up until you're saying all this stuff that he said in Perth, like, I just love tennis, I just love competing, like, yeah. that's why I keep going. It does not suck to be him. No. But, at the same time, it probably doesn't suck to be him, because, you know, he could probably run his own one-man tour. Mm-hmm. That's what Labor Cup essentially is. Right. I mean, yeah. like, right? Like, I mean, why at this point? I mean, and the clay thing is weird to me because this idea of like always oh, doing a a farewell farewell tour. Does Roger? I mean, outside of maybe Monte Carlo, does Roger need to say farewell at Madrid and Rome? Really? No. I mean, I, 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 he's I won Madrid a couple times, but he doesn't. But I don't. Take... I don't associate him. With those tournaments, is I don't know, so same know? with the French Open either. I mean, he's played it, yeah. But it's not. That's why like, I'm kind of like, okay, Monte Carlo, maybe, but I don't know. Just I, his Rolex. Just well, but I mean, that hasn't guaranteed his participation at an event before. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just, I mean, I've said it before. I will say it again. The next, you know, twelve months. If you're a tennis fan, maybe. Okay, I'm going to say this very crassly, but like maybe check your assholery at the door because this is the, there's a, there's a generation that's coming to an end now. Yeah. And instead of being stressed out about records and, you know, wins or how they're going to go out or if they're going to just, you know, take a step back and just appreciate that you still get to watch them play right now. Like... I, when Andy Murray retired, we can talk about Andy Murray more at the end of this show. Maybe we should do that. But we didn't really have a chance to do our Andy Murray chat <laughs> he yet. He says hour, and he's looking at me like, you have not talked this out yet. <laughs> nope. So, um, but I really do think, I was thinking when Andy's announcement came, there were very plausibly like six Grand Slam champions who could retire this year. At least. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I don't yeah, want to yeah. name their name, no, but there's, there's yeah. a lot yes. who are possibly on yes. there. And, and that's... 
in some ways, there's kind of like a dam building up and just like, it's, you know, it, uh, yeah, enjoy them and, you know, pay your respects and be nice to these people. And, 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 and have with Andy too, like Andy never, we'll talk about Andy again later, but like Andy never got crowd support like he got against for period of taste of good in his whole career outside of Wimbledon. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's true. And so, uh, not against Roger Wimbledon. No, I was like, let's add caveats to that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so other other men's stories. Uh, Francis Tiafo made the quarterfinals. Big one. That, that was, was awesome. That was pretty cool. I did not see that coming. Again, another guy who sucked in Perth, and he was way worse than Pui in Perth, honestly. Um, and he would say that like Perth was awful. Um, but then he came here. He beat Kevin Anderson in the second round, which I it really did not have circled as a big upset again because I thought Kevin could make the final or even win this tournament, honestly, depending on how things shook out. And Tiafo just like was there, just like took it to him pretty much in that match and kevin was having some sort of arm issue it looked like but tiafo fairly, fairly earned that win and backed it up uh in the next round beating seppi in five and then beat dimitrov in the fourth round and then it was not much of a match for nadal in the quarters that's but, a great trio of wins yeah. like anderson seppi and dimitrov those are those are veterans those are legit those are le- i mean seppi is one of those too where i'm just kind of like oh wow a young kid beats seppi like yeah. that's you know that guy knows how to play the tennis he's a good gatekeeper he's exactly. a good gatekeeper you know so and then the other two quarter and you've any more on francis no nope. and the other two quarterfinals who deserve shadows for having incredibly hard runs like you mentioned batista Agut. yes started off beating andy murray then beat john millman who's been playing great and was a huge hometown favorite mm-hmm. favorite everywhere i mean people just love the john millman, john millman is just the bee's knees i just want the world to understand this john millman is like good people courtney nguyen totally swooning over john millman just good people just a good dude good people good tongue um and then his tongue you've seen his tongue oh that yes that video i'm like you're imparting something on me that i feel like i need to step away from um ed batista agu then beat hatchanoff and then chilich like that's a murderer's row there's like his his two unseated were murray and millman like that's friggin' rough. To and potentially then, then face Roger, except that it wasn't Roger, it was Sitsipas. But him. yeah, but I mean that's an incredible that's an draw. Absurd draw. Yeah. Then to then possibly face Federer, Nadal, <laughs> no. Djokovic. Like that's insane. And then poor one out for RBA. Ronich, the other semifinalist, beat uh first round Kyrios, then Vavrenka, then uh Airbear, which is not the toughest, but still not easy. And then beat uh who was uh Zverev. Killed Sasha Zverev. One one and six. And Courtney <laughs> What do we do with Sasha Zverev at this point? If you, I mean, just looking objectively at him from his, uh, let's say, his Wikipedia performance timeline, um, which was, you know, screenshotted frequently this week. Privately. What, what do we do with him? He's a number, he's a number three player in the world who is a, you know, who is is having flop after flop after flop. Okay, okay, It's way worse than Svitolina. Here's, it, it. is arguably worse than Svitolina. I, I, I will say this in... I don't know if this constitutes a defense of Zverev or not. But in a lot of ways, I think that... Look, it's going to happen eventually for Sasha Zverev. I just don't doubt that in any, any, any way. He is going to be a multiple Grand Slam winner. He will be a future number one. All of these things. He's the next kind of like, you know... Um, you know, uh, anchor, I think, on the, on the ATP tour. Yeah. I, do, I do believe that. And so because of that, because I know that the success will be coming eventually, mm-hmm. I have no problems punching up. Like, I have no problems kind of like saying like, well, that's hilarious that you flopped. Like, you know what I mean? Like, if it was somebody who I, kind, you know, because you don't want to punch down. Yeah. If you're going to punch, you punch up. 
this guy is like is being handed the keys to the kingdom and he will put that key in the lock and turn it eventually no doubt about it 100 percent. so it's just funny it's just funny who how who who gets broken that many times by milos raonic <laughs> like how it's not it's not okay and then and then it comes the day after Steph puts on that display against Roger, and that's a whole thing. And then, then he busts out rack. I mean, you're just asking for us to just kind of be like, oh, you. There's one spicy asparagus, let me tell you. <laughs> no, it really was. I mean. I had to have the asparagus thing explained to me, but now I get it. Pungent. <laughs> It'll come. I do feel He's bad. Fine. I do feel bad for him in the way I feel bad for Svitolina, and that it does, it is a growing weight on him at Slams. But at the same time, He's doing it so badly. Like, when he loses at slams, he loses spectacularly. It's the thing that I don't really understand. He's not going out there and putting up serviceable... He's not these plucky losses. No, they're not plucky. They're de-plucked. They are whatever... <laughs> what, what, fully fully featherless, you know, chicken that cannot get one inch off the ground. <laughs> Other first week men's stories. One of the big stories was the Aussie drama. Yeah. Which happened while Andy Murray was in his... Uh, first round match, fighting valiantly. Bernard Tomic was doing something else valiantly in interview room two, ripping on Leighton Hewitt, and Leighton Hewitt came back at him, and there was this whole sort of... Meanwhile, there were these stories of these like, good Australian boys, which got so much coverage from local media and local TV, even like the post-tournament rap. There was so much stuff in the, like, the montage of the tournament about Alex Dimonar, who won two matches and then got killed by Rafa. And... I'm uncomfortable with this whole good boys, bad boys narrative in Australian tennis. I think it is very loaded with lots of different things that made me uneasy. There's some really easy to break codes. Yes. Let's just put it that way. And how these, these, these two sets of players are being discussed and quite unfairly. And, and, and not to say that like Bernard Tomic is an angel or Nick Kyrgios is an angel or Alex Deminer is a demon, but not a devil. Like, I don't know, but like... Demon, but not a devil. But, but... Good autobiography title. Thank you very much. Yeah. But there's so much more nuance to the discussion that needs to be had that I feel like people just either are willingly refusing to recognize the nuance. Yeah. Or just willfully, just like, ignorantly, I guess, not recognizing. I just don't think it's fair to the quote-unquote good boys either. Like, I don't think it's fair to Demonar, it's not fair to, to Alex, Millman, no. to Alex Bolt, to Popperin, to, like, who made the run. Actually, Popperin looked really good in this tournament. Yeah. Um, to to make them, like, oh, look how you're doing everything right. And then comp- it's always with this tinge of the other ones are not you. The other ones are not doing what you're doing. And it's just, it's very goofus and gallant in a way that I don't love. Yeah, I mean, I will say this, and I do this begrudgingly, but I do it because I do genuinely think it. I do think that like Leighton Hewitt's comments about the culture of Australian tennis were taken a little bit out of context. I don't think that he was, I personally don't think that he was making some veiled or terrible uh, reference to wanting a more effectively homogenous <laughs> looking, you know, Australian Fed uh, Davis Cup team or like, oh, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, not ethnic, yeah, mean. ethnic, exactly. We're not, I don't think that that's what he meant. I do think that he meant this culture of like work ethic and committing to Davis Cup and committing to, you know, your careers and being quote unquote professional. I think that that's what he meant. So I, I'm just going to throw that out there. I, I do kind of defend Leighton against that angle of attack. I, I just don't, I don't think that's what he meant, even though on paper, 
I can see why people think that he meant that. But and there have been plenty of other coded things. And said, this is the, this yeah. is the problem is that when you, we sweep everything up and under an umbrella of either everything's coded or nothing's coded, it doesn't work because there is co- some coded stuff re- related to certain things, and then other things it's actually quite innocuous and and quite innocent. You know, when you talk about a Nick Kyrgios, there's a lot of. I mean, I think that he in particular, when you when you pit the Kyrgios versus Deminer, which is what is happening right now. Obviously, Dominion number one Aussie, but Nick's effectively the number one star. Yeah. And how those two get pitted up against each other, which isn't fair because they get along with each other perfectly fine. But how both of those players are discussed, how their work ethic is discussed, how their potential and all that is it, it gets really complicated really fast. And, you know, because Nick, we all we all know, you know, it, Yes, he has issues with respect to his quote-unquote professionalism and his quote-unquote, like, you know, he doesn't always try all the time. and But he's obviously immensely talented. And you pit that up against a minner who's, like, built to be this guy who's just an absolute workhorse who, you know, won Sydney and the next day at 10 a.m. was practicing in Melbourne, um, getting a high five from Carolina Pliskova as she walked off the court, which I was like, you know each other? Um, (laughs) I was just really confused. Um, But... um, which was very nice, though. Um, but yeah, it, it's, you know, and meanwhile, Deminer is, I don't know, it's just complicated, right? Because it's like, Nick was born here, but he's treated as the other and weird. And Deminer is half Spanish and trains in Spain. And like... Doesn't spend very much time here at all. Doesn't spend much time here at all. But yeah. he's the one that the Australian public embraces. And maybe they embrace him because he's he's the work ethic guy. Which, okay... But maybe they also embrace him because he he passes as a non-ethnic mm. dude and Nick doesn't. It's a very complicated, tangled yarn. And it requires nuance to discuss. And I'm concerned and very worried that the people who are going to be given the the pens to discuss it or the microphones to discuss it aren't equipped to discuss it in a smart way. And that's just unfair to both of them. That's just going to create... And it's not about those two against each other because they don't, they like each other. Yeah, like, they do. I mean, no, apparently like they went out like on Monday night or something. Yeah. And there's a, a light, I heard, I haven't seen it, but I've heard there's like video of like Demon are like dancing on some table and it's apparently spectacular. Amazing. <laughs> Get Tanasi to give it to you. <laughs> I don't know if Tanasi was involved or not. I don't know. Tanasi's always involved. Yeah, he, he, he is. <laughs> um, other things in the men's draw before we go, we'll talk about Andy last in the show. We will remember to do that. We always forget things, but we'll talk about Andy at the end. Uh, nah, I think we're good. You don't want to want, talk about Thomas Fabiano versus Riley Opelka, which Fabiano won 10-5 in the fifth set. First set time was 17-15. Um, Riley Opelka did, did win some matches. The 10-point uh, tiebreak at the end of the fifth set. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> end of topic. <laughs> <laughs> it was fine. It was fine. It was fine. I, I missed long sets, especially for the women's matches, I do. But, but it, it was nice that once a men's set or women's set started the third set, that you knew that there was an end. Mm, I, mean, I, I didn't not enjoy that. I kind of missed the uncertainty <laughs> of driving down the icy road with no lights on. It's great. At, uh, at three in the morning with with uh, Muguruza and Kanta worrying that they're going to go 6-6. Six, six and yeah, I don't know. It was fine. I was okay with the tiebreak. It's break. fine. Speaking of things that are better than fine, Naomi Osaka won the Australian Open, her second straight Grand Slam, becoming the first woman to back up her first Grand Slam title by winning the next Grand Slam event since Jennifer Capriotti in 2001. 
Jacob doesn't come up in stats very much anymore. Oh, she's still the last woman to actually know Serena did it. Before Serena did it in 2015, Jacob was the first to win Australia and French back-to-back and get the first mm. half of the calendar slam. Okay. <clears throat> so that's something. That's nice. But Naomi Osaka gets there, is number one, was 72 last year. We are now, in theory, ushered fully into the Osaka era, the reign of Queen Naomi, the first of her name. What, <laughs> what do you... What... What do you think, I'll start with the future and then get back to how this tournament went. What do you think the Osaka reign will look like? Like, what what is she as a number one? Because it's different. She's it's a very, different. very it's, different It's very different. Character. Um, I think that she as a number one is just about tennis at this point, which is weird because obviously her launching pad comes in New York where... It wasn't about tennis at all, mm-hmm. um, but but yeah, I mean, I mean to be quite frank, I don't know. I mean, that's my that's my answer right now. You know, forty eight hours after she she won, I don't, and and you know, less than twenty four hours since she's been crowned world number one, I don't know what it means. I don't know how she'll handle it. Um, every indication is that she'll handle it perfectly fine, but we're going to see because obviously we know what Naomi can do on a hard court. And, you know, I was saying this, uh, I think, ahead of the final. The the only thing that was a little bit worrying to me about how things could pan out if Naomi were to win the final is that we are, though, looking potentially at a four-month period where she disappears. I mean, she has not yet, under, you know, learned or has confidence to learn how to play on clay. Mm. She doesn't really know how to play on grass yet. That I feel like she's maybe two or three seasons away she will eventually. I 100% believe that because her game is built to be able to win on both of those surfaces. Yeah. I think the, the the physical and the technical adjustments that she has to make. I mean, she doesn't like that low ball at Wimbledon. She doesn't like to have to hit balls off, you know, low where she has to like come up and over. It's not a thing, but she has a serve um, and the forehand, obviously. But yeah, I, I just feel like she's still a little bit undercooked on both those surfaces. So it's a little bit weird because she gets a number one. She obviously has opportunity to get points in the Middle East if, if she opts to play in Doha and Dubai. She has Indian Wells to defend, a thousand points there. She's got a good amount she could pick up in Miami and Charleston. But then once things shift over to Europe, that's my biggest question. Is like, then are we in a situation where, and obviously she has no points to defend during that swing. So it's not like she's going to like tumble in the rankings. Mm-hmm. People have to overpass her, uh, overtake her. And um, I think, I think te- tennis is, women's tennis maybe even more so, but men's too. I mean, has understood, not in this recent era as much. But we have had number ones who are not good clay players. Sure. Certainly Pete Sampras, biggest example, was, was, was not a good. Yeah, Wozniacki more recently on the women's side. Kerber was not a great clay player, yeah. really. Um, Serena, for parts of her career, was not yeah. very good on clay. Um, or Maria. not nowhere near as the bar. Right, Maria, even earlier on. And so... Vika. Vika. Yeah, Vika's a good example, for sure. Like, So we know what... It, we I think people will understand, won't panic when it's like third round losses in Madrid and Rome but as number one. That's the thing, is that I'm not concerned about the people panicking. I'm more concerned about whether she panics mm. because last year, you know, she had uh, once uh, Cincinnati rolled around, she had lost to Marie Sakari first round of Cincy. And she put up that kind of a uh, post on her Twitter basically saying, yeah, it's been brutal. Like, and, and she, she talks a lot about how after winning Indian Wells, um, you know, she slumped, which you and I were laughing about last night about like, you slumped, you beat Serena in the next, that your next match, your next match. Uh, but overall she did. She didn't do much on the clay and the grass and, and on the hard court lead up to the U.S. Open. Um, but she says, you know, that's where I learned. And that's why 
my belief of what I can do really stems not from Indian Wells and not even from the U.S. Open, but what I did after the U.S. Open, that she was able to make four of five semifinals after the U.S. Open, that she made China Open semis, Tokyo final, qualified for Singapore, semifinals of Brisbane. Yeah. Now this is five of six. Semifinals are better. That's a great strike rate. We don't see that often anymore on the women's side. So that's my biggest question. And that's what everybody's biggest question is, is like, how do you, how does she handle the pressure? But she's, she's, I keep falling into the trap of thinking that Naomi Osaka is softer than she actually is because she's soft-spoken because she has that little, you know, sometimes like the way that she speaks and, you know, that she does freak out on the court. She acts shy. She acts shy. You just, you just are, are tempted to project this fragility on her. And yet we say that despite the fact that this is a kid who her Indian Wells run, the first two matches she had to win were against Sharapova and Radvanska. And then she blitzes the world number one in the semifinals and she blitzes through Kasatkina. Um, U.S. Open, she say, she beats Sabalenka having no idea what the heck to do in that, you know, that uh, that round of 16. And then she, you know, saves 13 of 13 break points against Madison Keys in the semifinals up against it. And then she goes and survives that final, which we've seen so many people blinking. That was an insane final. And then this week, and then this fortnight, which is, you know, should have lost to Shueisha. Yep. Probably should have lost to Sevastova. She was, it was a tough first set against Svitolina that she was able to eke out. Somehow she had hit like 45 winners and yet found herself in a third set against Pliskova on the verge of losing. I mean, that was a dead yeah. even match and she found a way to do it. And then Kvitova in tears, having lost, you know, not being able to convert on those three set points, which Petra match completely points, yeah. saved. Yeah. Championship points in the second set, melting down in tears as she asks, you know, the chair empire to go off for a toilet break, somehow steals herself to win that match against a Petra that we know wins three set matches. And, and the other thing about that, the second set thing, people talk about the uh, championship points she had, but also she served for it and then got broken too, yes. which people haven't talked about as much. Right. Like the, the, the serving for it is worse than It's the worse than having, not converting your return break yeah. points maybe, arguably. Yeah. Yeah, I think that she, and I was thinking about this as um, we were in her press conference after she won, and she was very tired, <laughs> so and, tired. And, and a bit hangry, which was amusing. Uh, not amusing, just like it was different. It was a different look for Naomi to be kind of at the end of her rope a little bit and have less patience for some questions. And she didn't Rightfully get so. some op- her opening question was pretty boneheaded she got. Yeah. But um, just hearing her describe how she can compartmentalize things, like she does have some superpowers. Like this is like sort of like finding out that, you know, she's like, I don't know, who's the best example? Sort of like a... You might underestimate her, but then you find out that she's like a Matilda. <laughs> well, <laughs> and she can is... telekinese things and, 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 and fuck up a trunch bowl. Well, that, that, this is the, the, the super, as a fan of comic books and superhero movies, the image that I was really kind of like, some, like found myself coming back to after she won the final was kind of the, um, you know, the superhero. I think it's an X-Men first class. Anyways, that can kind of absorb the energy being thrown at them so somebody can go with them with some like heat strike or cold strike or whatever it is shoot whatever and they can absorb it and then completely redirect it threefold back to its source and that was kind of the image that that kept coming to mind as i was trying to like kind of ruminate on naomi is just like that is that you think that she's not built to come through in those pressure moments and yet all the data points seem to indicate that she can 
And and that's why I'm curious about the next you know few months. And even though this was a much calmer tournament for her than the way New York finished, she did have the whole Nissan whitewashing sure. you know controversies with one of her sponsors, which is a very delicate thing to have to navigate. And she handled that well. really very well. And after a bit, you know, didn't duck it. Her first answer was a little bit, you know, trying to minimize it. But then her second one like engaged and was open and very impressively uncanned. And that's the thing about Osaka. Which is interesting and uh, makes me nervous and excited or anxious in a both good and bad way. Is that like I don't know what it's going to be from her because she's so like unfiltered. genuine and unfiltered yeah. and nothing canned. And there are certain things I was saying after you get to be number one. Like being number one comes with the role of being sort of a spokesman for the tour. And that comes with... I think some necessary often canned things you have to do. Sure. You have to be able to go up there and defend equal prize money against reporters who are trying to tell you that after you win semifinal in 55 minutes, you don't deserve as much as the men. That's going to happen to every woman who's a top player at some point. And you she become hasn't, a spokesperson. Right, and she, hasn't, and she hasn't done that yet. So, you know, I, I don't think she's unable to do it. And I think she'll find her way to do it in her own way. But I, you know, also think that she could go to, you know, Billie Jean King camp for a day and kind of get her number one training this was not something honestly that simona was always the best at uh in her reign as number one who was which, also unfiltered and yeah. very like kind of raw i mean Simona yeah, was her, open definitely. and raw in her own way definitely and that got her in trouble and that and yeah. that you know at times and so yeah so no you're totally right i mean you know simona eventually grew into that role as the world number one she became that alpha naomi obviously has the number next to her name but she is not that alpha i don't think that we we necessarily think that not obviously on the court anyway. yeah exactly on the court sure um so that's where you know all, all remains to be seen uh other players made deep in this tournament. petra kvitova yes! made the final everyone was very happy for petra it was like this is final was really nice going into because it was a final where i was gonna be really happy for whoever won they got their moment of sort of a comeback for naomi coming back from new york which i don't think is overstated i think i did want her to have her sort of maresmo ish redo of winning that first slam and yeah. getting to enjoy it more and her reaction wasn't quite like Maresmo in twenty in Wimbledon two thousand six, where but she was. Maresmo like, didn't have the match that she had to right, play. <laughs> right, no, not, she didn't have that traumatic, not traumatic, the overstatement, but that wild, you know, roller coaster match that Naomi had just survived at the end. And then Kvitova obviously coming back from the knife attack and everything. It was a match where I was going to be really happy for the winner, but also wasn't worried for the loser. Yeah. In a way that was different than like last year here with Halep and Wozniacki, mm-hmm. where. One of them was finally going to break through and be great, but I would feel pretty crushed for whoever lost and still hadn't gotten there. Yeah. Like, neither of them had much to lose, really, in this match, I think, in which I don't like saying in sports, but it rel- felt relatively, that way. yeah. I mean, and that and that, that goes towards kind of what they were overcoming. Yeah. That that too. And I remember going into the final thinking, you know, I, I, I do want this for Petra, only because I don't think that Naomi needs to win this final in order to prove that New York wasn't a fluke. She's proven it. Yeah. You know, like, so that, but it was like a 51-49 sort of situation. Like, it, it was a tough one to call. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Petra, I mean, probably the, the the emotional, the heart of the women's tournament, I think, is safe to say, mm-hmm. in terms of her run. And um, a dominant one, actually the most dominant run to a, a, a slam final she's ever had in her career, more dominant than 2011 Wimbledon and 14 Wimbledon. Um, which but, were pretty dang good. Which were pretty dang good. But, you know, in that final, it just became about tennis. And you just got the sense that Osaka, who had come through all of those tough three-set matches, who said herself, like, I've been on the verge of losing in this ma- this tournament, like, 
the entire two weeks. You know, that that being used to that situation, being used to those nerves, like really paid off. And and she did what I thought she did incredibly well um, against Pliskova, which is that she was brave when she needed to be. Yeah. Saving all those break points in that first set, saving break points again in the third set, and really going for her shots and going for a serve. Like not trying to push, not waiting for Petra to, to miss. Um, you know, that that already shows a an impressive level of maturity in the tight moments. For sure. Other people made it deep in this tournament. Carolina Pliskova made it to we the semifinals, Plisco. had a great tournament, um, losing 6-4 in the third to Osaka. After winning Brisbane, coming with the winning streak, she played what I think will probably be the most memorable match of the women's tournament, I think her quarterfinal against Serena, um, which was a wild ride. She won the first set, Pliskova uh, lost the second set, which was pretty tight, 6-4, had, was up a break early in that set, and lost it, and then went down 5-1 in the third set. 5-1, love 40? Mm, no, five four. It was forty thirty when Serena had her match point. Okay. So Serena has match point. First serve five one forty thirty is Serena's first match point. Yes, five Serena serving five one forty thirty, and just very much in control. Uh, first serve. I know that I'm going to say this, but first serve was a foot fault, which I just fully believe was a foot fault. You don't not call you don't call foot fault for no reason there, and people will be like, "What about the foot fault call? Why wasn't she asked about that?" Like because she almost blatant. almost certainly foot faulted. Um, and then uh, and then on the second serve, she plays a point, and Carolina hits the ball kind of behind her wrong foot, Serena, and Serena tries to change direction, and goes over on her ankle, and gets um, and and rolls her left ankle a bit. Um, kind of jams it. I mean, she definitely went over on it. Not thankfully, horribly bad. Yeah, thankful, thankfully, Serena is one of those incredibly wise players that actually tapes up her ankles. For every match. For every match, which so many players don't do, and it still drives me nuts. Yeah. But <clears throat> she definitely went over on it, but it looked a little bit more like a jam yeah. than a than a full sprain. Yeah, like, it, was, it didn't look know. like a sprain, but it did look painful. And for sure. That her, le- her left foot, that's what first she lands on for her serves and everything. And... After that, and I didn't realize this until after the match when uh, Ravi Uba pointed it out to me, that after that she did not win a single another point on serve. People are dropping billiard balls above us. Um, <laughs> she did not win a single other point on serve, and so you cannot tell me that didn't affect her. When Serena Williams sure. suddenly cannot win a point on serve, uh, and Serena did have chances to win the match, even with these clear she injury. She got three more. She got three more all in return, and Pliskova played those points really well. Perfectly. And... Serena, impressed, really kind of downplayed the ankle and was very conciliatory and said Pliskova just played lights out was the phrase she kept using on those points. And I do agree Pliskova played well, for sure. However, I fully believe that Serena did not get hurt. She would have won that match. I, I, I just I fully believe that. Oh, if she sorry, if she had not rolled quickly, her ankle, she would have won, she the would have won the match. And I think that it's very gracious of her to give all the credit to Carolina. It feels honestly intentionally corrective from her after having been got, getting so much criticism, especially in this country, for how things went down in the U.S. Open final uh, for being a sore loser. And I actually did talk to Aussies afterwards who were like, well, at least, you know, at least she was a much better loser this time or whatever. It's like she made her point to that audience in what she was saying. And she's for her, throughout her career, she's gotten ripped for not always being a gracious loser. But this time, I think she went... Um, made a clear choice to make that so that could not be the story and gave Pliskova all the credit, which I'm sure Pliskova appreciates. And that's the thing with Serena repeatedly. When she does... Serena's an app was one of the fiercest competitors we've ever seen in the sport, for sure. But when she does go out of her way to make it, to give all the praise to the opponent, it means a lot to the opponent. 100%. What, yeah. Especially, I remember Angelique Kerber when she won in 2016 yeah. here. 
Like that meant a lot to Kerber, how gracious Serena was to her. And so I'm not saying it's the right or wrong thing to do. I mean, I think Serena should be, I think everybody should be honest first and foremost, but what her reaction, I think did serve a, a good purpose for her. And Pliskova said she noticed the injury to her, but wasn't trying to focus too much on it anyway. But yeah. it's, it's a tough break for Serena, for sure. It's a, it's a huge, it's a hugely tough break for Serena. It's like another, you know, piece of bad luck that I feel like, I'm sure that she feels that she's had to suffer on in pursuit of this number 24. And But I do maintain that, and, and this isn't something that's new here. I mean, it's been something that I've been saying for, for a while now that I believe on any given day, Serena Williams is and can beat anybody you know, regardless of ranking yeah. uh, in the world, whether or not she can do so seven times over two weeks at a major is is different. And 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 this just feels a little bit less only because, you know, she, she did roll the ankle. So there's an ex- external reason as to why she may have not been able to close it out. But still, she I mean, she, she lost the first set to Pliskova. She, you know, like as opposed to New York where she kind of came back and was able to take that first set from Pliskova and win straight sets. Here was a little bit different, even in the, the round previously against Simona Halep. Went three sets, great quality match, you know, and, and Halep was right there in it. I mean, you still kind of always felt that Serena, if she could just clean things up a little bit, would, would take care of it, but she was right there. It was a really good match. It was a really Halep, good match. And, and I just, and those two matches back to back, my reaction to it was, you know, like that this is the challenge now. This is the result of this depth. This is the result of you know, the absence for, for, you know, 18 months is, is that in that time, these women have gotten better. They've earned more belief in their abilities and the aura that Serena took to the court took a little bit of a hit just because time does that, you know, I mean, like Simona said, she's the best player in the world. I'm not disputing that, right? Like I'm the number one, but she's the best player in the world. Like that's no one's no one's disputing that, and I don't think anybody in the tour would. But Serena's draw would have basically had her go through Halep, Pliskova, Svitolina, Osaka, no Osaka. Oh Osaka, sorry Osaka, um, and then Kvitova. She had a nightmare draw, and that and it was a nightmare draw, and. That's not easy. You're no. you're asking a lot, and and yeah. Nightmare draw that held up, unlike U.S. Open, where she yes. got a tough draw that did not hold up. This draw, this held time up. the draw held up. Yeah, and that was an interesting thing. Sort of even through the first week of the tournament, like wait, no real upsets and nothing, nothing big surprise, well, and, and it, that was it, it, a different feel, which was really actually really nice to see. It was really great to see, and and it's one of those things where again, like all I like are consistent arguments. I a hundred percent think that Serena Williams is the bee's knees and is the best women's tennis player yep. on the planet. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it to me personally, which means that if this crew of players that get slagged off by and mocked by fans or 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 broadcasters or writers as mm-hmm. not even being players that can even attempt to, you know, challenge for the throne, if they have closed the gap this much, I don't think it's because Serena's not like who she is anymore. I do think a lot of it has to do with the gap being closed, and I think that they deserve a hell of a lot more credit than I think that they get. And I think that's something that's been very sort of apparent as Serena has become this bigger than tennis figure and gotten a lot of cultural um, meaning and across a wider range of pop culture and you know American culture, especially that there is not a lot of respect for her 
competitors always and a lot of thinking like she's the queen and she steps on these vermin right basically is the tone. i don't like that i don't no. like that tone i don't no. like because it's and the serena data has not borne this out and serena doesn't really think that no and i don't think serena thinks it does at all no. at all she absolutely knows how tough it is to do what she's trying to do right she now. knows who pliskova is she knows who halep is she knows who kerber is kerber is right and in a way that you know even players who were like trying to go back in her job she played bardi if she played Pavlyuchenkova, she didn't. But if she played, um, who was she going to play in that third round? Like Carla or, you know. Sabalenka. Sabalenka. Yeah. Like whoever, you know. Sophia Kennan. Like she would know who these people are in a way. Because she's, she's a pro. I mean, she she is not somebody who goes out into matches being unprepared for her opposition. Right. She and walked... that's the thing is that it's the other flip side of it. It's like yeah. this incredible disrespect to Serena. Like that you think that what she's trying to do is easy. Yeah. It's not. It's no. so hard to do what she's trying to do so that when she does it, and I actually personally have no doubt that she will do it, mm. but when she does it, I hope people celebrate it like it's an actual feat and not just like, oh, so Queen did what Queen does. No, because Queen is a three bites at the apple now. Yeah. And it hasn't happened. And it's not because something has gone horribly awry every single time. Some of it is also about X's and O's and is about forehands and backhands. Mm-hmm. And then and people yeah. play well. I think this is the first one of her losses that I think can be like honestly like fairly asterisked because of this injury. You think this one's more asteriskable than US Open? 1000% because she was getting beat at the US Open. And she had a 5-1 oh, in the third enough. lead yeah, here. Okay. I see your I see your love. Yeah. I mean, I I think US Open things happened, but not in a way that necessarily changed what was probably going to be the result anyway. Okay. Yeah. That's my thought. Um so that's Serena. The other one player, I don't know if she would have been familiar with or not, who made the semifinals of this tournament. On the bottom half is Danielle Collins. Who, Come on, let's go right now. Who, let's talk about it. Uh, <laughs> who, uh, she's not rapid fire sh- talking like that, is she? Mm. You know, she does do that. I just, I, just, I, I love I, it. I hear more of the shouts of no, no, no. Like when she, when she hit that drop shot winner at Love Thirty <laughs> in the second set, in the most one of the most memorable matches of the women's tournament for me for sure was her match against Angela Kerber in the fourth round, in which she absolutely destroyed Kerber. Unbelievable. Six zero, six two. Six love six two as we say in tennis. Um, it was wild, yo. It was. Wild. It was friggin' wild. It was. It was shades to me, shades of Petrova Kleisters, which was a mm-hmm. beat down from seven years ago here, eight years ago here. It was no, actually nine years ago here. It was nuts, and she was playing great. Like Kerber did not play especially well in that match, but wasn't horrific. Collins was just on the front foot and dictating the entire time. And never relented. And when Angie tried to get, you know, a bit of momentum back in the second set, (laughs) Collins had no patience for it. And her combative nature, her willingness to go out there and brawl, which I've just always, I always enjoyed watching her. And for whatever reason, I know a lot of people find her incredibly obnoxious and abrasive. And she isn't not abrasive. (laughs) But for me, she does it in this way that is self-aware and unapologetic and thoughtful and considered that I like can almost be like, I, 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 I don't hate it. I really don't hate watching her do her thing. I really don't. And like, as much as it should be nails on a chalkboard on paper, when you describe what she does to me, like for me, I, 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 I just, I don't know. I enjoy it. I, I enjoy her. There's a freshness about it. And I think that the biggest thing is what you keyed into, which is that she leans into it. Yeah. If she were if she were a player that was like that, and let's not pretend that we don't have other players on the WTA or ATP tour that do stuff like this, mm-hmm. but 
Um, but they also back away from it. They don't, they're like, oh, I, I, I didn't do that. I, I'm just going I'm, out there to play my I'm game. I'm just going to play my game. Like, that's a little bit more just kind of like eye roll. You're just like, okay, whatever. But like, she just leans, she's like, yeah, I'm going to make a war. Yeah, I'm competitive. I'm competitive in everything. Yeah, Sasha Vickery, yeah. Yeah, like she, she's <laughs> in on it. She, she's going to go. She's going to put her fists up and she's going to fight. I respect that because like at the end of the day, it amuses me that it puts people off as much as it does. Now, when she crosses the line and makes things personal and does things that are not that are quite untoward, like you wouldn't have a conversation in person with a per- like the person that way, and it crosses beyond just shouting and you know shouting at somebody and stuff like that. That's I'm like that's not cool. And did she, she do that here? I don't know if she did it here, but she does has done it in the past, according to players who have told me. Okay. Um, where I was because. A few players had texted me. I had to get texts about her, too. Yeah. And they were like, uh. And I was like, okay, but are you guys annoyed because she screams in your face? Because I don't think, I think that's innocuous. That's just you being soft. Sorry. But if there's something like, actually, she's like trash talking in like a yo mama kind of way, then like, maybe. And yeah, there have been moments where it's gotten personal. And I'm like, okay, that's not okay. But for the most part, especially when she's on the show courts, she tones that side of it down. And it's just more the scream, the yelling the coming on the the come ons in your face, the shouting down to the other other side of the court, um, and it amuses me, I suppose, that when players get rattled by it, I think that that's part of the amusement. Because at the end of the day, we can't like it you, can't you can't be that soft. Like when you are Angelique Kerber and you are by all definitions, I mean this with the most love. Really she is a badass. badass lady who you takes know, nothing, takes nothing, and is a fighter and a gra- grappler out there, and yet. When she, you know, get is getting her butt handed to her and is the reigning Wimbledon champion number two seed and comes up and seems to shrink against Collins, like, damn, Collins, that's pretty good. Seriously. Damn, I, yeah, Collins. To be fair, my reading of that match is a little bit different than yours. I think Angie actually just played a really crap match. And, and Collins played very, very well. I don't think that the yelling had anything to do with Angie being perturbed. Well, Angie came out in the early in the second set and started doing a couple, like, audible, like... She did. ...off guesses and come on, let's go, whatever. And she and got then, broke. And she and broke. Then, and she did broke. But Collins screamed in her 100%. face the second she won a point. Sure. And Kerber did not make another sound. Yeah, but also because Kerber, like her level, just dipped, and she she could barely get the. I, it's diff- I I get what you're saying. I don't. I just don't think it necessarily applies to that okay. specific match. But, okay. um, yeah. I mean, a hell of a run for her. I mean, she was playing challengers a year before. I mean, again, I mean, if if there's one of the narratives out of the women's t- the women's tournament is like what a difference twelve months makes. I mean, Naomi Osaka was number seventy two. Petrovitova lost in the first round, um, and was just starting her comeback. Danielle Collins you know, makes it, uh, was playing challengers, um, you know, and had never won a Grand Slam main draw match before right. this. And uh, and they were three of the final four. It's pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Let's go with the solid, reliable one. It's also a, a low-key narrative in the WTA. And also, Conchita. Yeah. You keep doing you, girl. Like, how 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 is she not just like the freelance, like, rabbit's foot? <laughs> just like, pay her 20 grand to sit in your box at a slam. Usually, things will, good things will happen. Return on investment's very good. It's not bad. Not bad ROI mm-hmm. there. Um, other women's stories. Let's see. Ash. Ash did great. Ash. Pova uh, was. Oh, that was a great match, actually. That was a, great match. That was a really good match. Pova was. Um, did not see Pova winning that, but was. It was good. I thought it was good. I mean, I don't, you know, 
good. It was good. No, I mean that little section, the Sharapova was Nyaki, I really I really thought Caroline would have that match and that Sharapova was able to play as well as she did in that match and really play aggressively. She was landing returns like really well this tournament, which is a big thing that she wasn't happening last year for her. Um it's so a huge part of her game. Yeah, return Pova is is kind of got her legs back under her. Um so a really big win for her over Waz 6-3 in the third and then p- turns around and plays Ash Barty against a crowd who's not exactly pro maria they, they don't nor is ash's sponsor, sponsor? Of breakfast spread that was brutal to... that was savage explain that i mean like they were just like i think i think savage is a word for it whether you want to judge good or bad no it's just it, savage it's just it's savage like, and they had like vegemite tastes like quiet please maria or whatever so is that supposed to be like it tastes like that sensation or that it would shut sense of satisfaction she's too busy spitting it out I didn't. This is the problem. Is I didn't really understand the billboard. No, it, it tastes just, like it just, quiet, please, Maria. Like this, it tastes like the satisfaction of being able to tell Maria Sharapova to be quiet. That's the most. That's uh, very good. Placey. Coherent reading. Yeah. That's very like you know. This smells it, like heaven. Smells like bacon and eggs. This ta- This this frozen yogurt tastes like my phone being fully charged. Exactly. exactly. Oh, it's a honey. Yeah. Yeah. That was so. that was Eleanor. I think I had that. Oh, that's right. Yeah, um, but yeah, no. So that that little section was 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 pretty interesting. I thought again, Simona making it to um, as far as brutal. she did uh, was pretty impressive, honestly, given her lead up and how undercooked that she was. And when I sent out after the first two rounds, I mean, really, the biggest upsets at that point had been like Pavlychenkova beating Burton's. Uh, Kasatkina losing to Pachinsky. Collins Gurgis. Collins Gurgis. I think those were the three big quote unquote upsets of the first two rounds. And so I sent a quote, a, a, a text out saying, or not a text, a tweet saying, you know, what was the biggest upset of the first two rounds? And somebody wrote back, like, Simona Hallett beat Kaya Kanepi. I was like, you know what? I think you might be right because I think that most of us were pretty much expecting for Simona to bow out of, bow out of that one. Especially when Kanepi took the first set. Exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was tight. I mean, six, seven, or. Kenepi took the first set 7-6 and then lost the second set 4-6. But um, And then Kennan had Halep against the ropes, 4-2 up in the third. Halep came back and then Halep played the best match of the, the... Well, no, she played really good against Serena, but she played a great match against Venus. So so good to see Simona kind of getting it together and in talks with David Goffin's uh, former coach, who they split mid-tournament, uh, Thierry Van Kumput. After, after Goffin's tournament ended, yeah. Yeah, after Goffin's uh, tournament en- ended. So uh, Thierry Van Klimput was on um, Halep's court. Very nice was, guy. Yeah, very nice guy. I mean, I'd love Team Goffin. And honestly, I think that like that's kind of amazing because I mean, Simona plays Goffin like, like if Not you the were worst to, if you were yeah. to want to like kind of take an ATP player that she could kind of like. That's actually true because Goffin is like is that yeah same kind of like very light on his feet mover very agile does not play with a lot of variety which Simona people don't really realize Simona's like people Simona has no slice. Simona is a flat hitter. She's kind no of like slice, no net. does that one thing really well. Yep. And Goffin is kind of the same. Goffin maybe has a few more drop shots, maybe a little bit more variety, but doesn't like really. From my thinking of Goffin, I could be wrong, but I don't remember him hitting a whole lot of slices in his life. So uh, yeah, that's actually an interesting kind of one to one comparison. Yeah. yeah. So they're they're nothing's formalized, and so but they uh, Halep said that they they were talking. So, which would be, which would be good. That would, be, that would accelerate her timeline. She said that she wasn't going to hire a coach for another three or four months. But yeah. if she had somebody in place by the Middle East or India Wells, that would be a, a boost to her. Because she also fully acknowledges, which is such a Simona thing to do. So I'm going to go coachless. Oh, can you win if you don't have a coach? Oh, God, no. You got to have a coach to win on this level. It's like, what? <laughs> 
<laughs> such a weird thing for the former, but then number one to say, but so it goes. Um, Simona will be, I, I won't, I would bet more likely than not that she gets back to number one at some point in her career. Yes. However, she'll be an interesting number one to look back on because like the Simona Halep number one reign was kind of goofy and wild and, but also like fun, but also bizarre, but also great. I don't disagree with any of that. You know, I mean, I, the, the Simona reign, I think, was more like her 40 week consecutive run, 48 week consecutive run at the top was almost it, it felt like kind of an achievement award for kind of coming up so close and getting kicked yeah. in the face so often in 2017. Uh, and she has been the most consistent top 10 player of the last actively of the last like, you know, five, six, seven years. Yeah. Like she hasn't dropped out of the top 10. So That's for sure. Can are you ready? Oh my god! Can we talk about um, the man who held a pre-term press conference on Friday? That's Courtney. Courtney toast herself. Because <laughs> she has two drinks. I don't have two drinks. Okay, bottle and glass. Fine. I mean, I technically have three drinks in my belly, but so it goes. Let's talk Andy Murray. All right, Courtney. What Let's was your thoughts when you heard Andy Murray's announcement on Friday? Um. Take yourself back there. I'm okay. trying to. It feels, first of all, forever ago, <laughs> like right? A month, two months ago. Um, this tur- tournaments have a way of doing that. Um, I wasn't shocked. No. Um, that was, I think, the overwhelming thing that I remember is that I, I kind of woke up and I read it on Twitter, um, because the night before, I think you were over here, and it, and and maybe. Or we were with Reem maybe as well, or a few people, and it was like, oh, Andy Murray's doing a press conference at 11 a.m. I think I remember at that time being like, who does a press conference at 11 a.m.? Like, before even... Days before. Days yeah. before anybody else is doing press conferences. He is, his was the only press conference that was that day. Um, and it had come the day after he had done that practice match against Novak. I was like, hmm... So... It, I remember saying before, to go back on that night, I think we were at a dinner or something, Dumplings, I believe. Most like, likely. Percentage-wise, it was dumpling. I didn't understand why he played that practice match with Novak. Because, no. like, what good can possibly come of playing the best player in the world when you know that you're not playing all that great? Like, wh- how on earth could this help you going into a Grand Slam? Yeah. To play a practice match in front of an audience with, like, a scoreboard. Like, I mean, maybe oof. he just needed to get into match conditions. You can and... get your choice of any partner if you're if you're Andy Murray. Go play against... Maverick Baines. Go play against one of these Aussie... That's a real name. That is a real person. That's I don't. He wasn't main draw, but he's That's an Aussie name. player, Maverick Baines. Um, <laughs> I think you just made the Bernie Challenger final, so congratulations, Maverick. Um, B-U-R-N-I-E, not the B-E-R-N-I-E. <laughs> imagine, if, imagine if Bernie Tomic had his own challenger. Gold Coast, probably at Sin City, hasted. Oh. <laughs> Their cheerleaders on court. I would that tournament. And Leighton Hewitt distance. is not allowed through the grounds. <laughs> no. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. For him to go play with, oh, Mark Pullman's was the name I was trying to think of. Like, mm. people who were in the draw who were like, because Mark Pullman was playing the next match, like, on that, in the practice court session. Be like, why not Andy just, like, get some confidence? Like, why get this, and you know it's going to be deflating playing Novak for almost anybody on tour, but especially you. But he did it, and then he made his announcement. Well, he started making his announcement, and then he started crying, left the room. Eleanor Preston, the, um... The, the Sherpa of emotions at these tournaments uh, guided him away and then back. And uh, yeah. for those who don't know, Eleanor was also the moderator during the Garbina Muguruza press conference after she lost to Christina Mladenovic at the French Open and had to excuse her. So the next day I saw her and she walked up to say hello. I was like, hold on. I'm, 
I'm getting a little bit emotional. Can you take me outside? She got mad. <laughs> because Eleanor Preston is a goddamn pro. <laughs> Who we've had on the podcast before. We have. Um, yeah, so, you know, all of it is... is, is there's two, I, I guess my emotions kind of, uh, or my thoughts on things kind of uh, address two separate issues. First of all, it as John Wertheim wrote in his mailbag, this was a quasi-retirement announcement. And I was quite stunned. I mean, first of all, the match against RBA um, was great. It was really good. So dramatic. Better than I thought it would be, for sure. Better than I thought it was going to be. So good. Um, Andy obviously losing, and basically running out of gas and, and losing the fifth set. Um, but they... Then he he goes and does the interview, and Tennis Australia runs what is effectively an Andy Murray in memoriam. It was a eulogy. It was it, so interviewing all these players. I gotta say, not a good video. It either. was. It wasn't. It was it, weirdly like clunkily, like not the tone was really off. It was like too bouncy and cutesy. Yeah. To be what is essentially throwing dirt on someone's grave. It was just all of it was just was. The Weird tone. and bad. And the interview, the encore interview, I didn't like either. Yeah. Well, they were clearly, Mark Petchy did the interview, who's obviously coached Andy from when he was very young, when he was in his teens. So it was, it was kind of designed to try and get Andy Murray to cry and bless Andy Murray, who was still fully in competition mode at that moment. Just like, not unlike a Naomi Osaka, like hollow and just like, yeah, tough match. He like, was annoyed he lost. Yeah, he was annoyed he lost because that's Andy Murray. But so I was a little bit annoyed because i genuinely thought that what would happen because andy's announcement was not that he's retiring it's that this could be my last australian open i might undergo surgery and i really want to finish it the wimbledon he, but he, i don't know if i can that's the he substance said, he of said his, this could be his last tournament yeah yeah it could be yeah but could yeah. is the the is the emphasis so i really thought that what tennis australia was going to do was like run a video or some sort of tribute that was like celebrating andy murray at the australian open I mean, this is a guy who made what five finals, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, a uh, five-time runner-up. Um, um, you know, some one of the most amazing shots I've ever seen hit against Chilich in that uh, that one semifinal that one year. Yep. Um, tearfully apologizing to an entire nation at the middle of the night that he couldn't get it done. Uh, that one year. Um, yeah. I mean, he has so many memories here. So like, why not? And you know for a fact that this is like his last Australian Open, based off what he said. Yeah. So why not? Keep it within the confines of the Australian Open. And then even before the video rolled, he already said, like, maybe I'll be back next yeah, year. Yeah, it was weird. At which point, which which was, I was like, I was like cringing. And like, it was, which all made it really, honestly, it was, I was writing the story on his match. And I was sort of like, you had to put, you had to change so many things into like conditional tense. I mean, like, what could have been his last match was played maybe on Monday <laughs> against possibly Roberto Batista And we don't know for sure, but the score was five sets. It was like all that was so just like, oh, Andy, just like Band-Aid or not. You know, right. I, I, as much as I don't want to ever force anybody out of the sport, when you've already kind of made the announcement to sort of hedge at the end, it's like. Uh, it was it was tough. Uh, you know, I, yeah. mean, and, and I, I definitely sympathize with everybody who had to kind of write that story and have to write this really weird mealy mouth caveat yeah. ridden you know like this could be and if it is then this but if it's not then this and you know but anyways um but just i just think that 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 last match against rba again as we said before and paid tribute to before such a pro such a tough out who played that match so well and have him it's so miserable for him yeah and like that entire arena melbourne arena which used to be high sense arena packed to the gills so in favor so supportive of andy I, I, I find it very hard to believe that he would roll the dice 
and step back on the court at Wimbledon only to get, you know, two, one, and threed by somebody nobody's ever heard of. That's why I, again, was a little bit frustrated that he hedged at the end because mm. and I, 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 this I would, would have been amazing this would have been the yeah. perfect like ending and like honestly what got me throughout the match a couple of things got me throughout the match and like i just sort of sort of welling up i'm not even like i have nowhere near the history with murray that you do jamie and i will defer to you it's jamie jamie jamie's never <laughs> there at his matches and jamie's there in his like olive green shirt looking like he's just back from war <laughs> It right, was a lot, yeah, and sitting there next to his mom, and just and like sort of like paying, their, throw up at and any looks moment. So nervous, and it's like they're paying their respects, and like every time Andy won like a long point, he won a few like really long yeah, drop shotty yeah. Murrayish points. It's like, oh my god, he's gonna do this again, <laughs> and it was a lot, and it so was a lot. I certainly had enjoyed that, my personal closure from that match, and was hoping that Andy would feel the same, and but anyway, regardless of like whether or not he's finished. And I, we don't know if he had the surgery or not, as far as I know. I don't know. The reporting was kind of murky on that. And for people who just, and just to clarify, because I think it's a really important thing to kind of understand for people who maybe didn't follow the reporting, which is fair. I mean, it, it's fine. But um, basically the, the issue was obviously Andy had been in pain for a very long time. He has a hip problem. Yeah. And there are two basic options. One would be for him to, after this tournament, just sit it out and then go play Wimbledon as his last event. Which a lot of people are just kind of like, why not just do that? Like, just don't play another tournament. Yeah. Don't put your body through it and just take the court at Wimbledon. That is one option. The other option is to undergo effectively a total hip replacement, which um, is a pretty significant physical surgery. Or even where, a hip resurfacing is one of them, too. Is it resurfacing? It's not a total I hip? Hear, I didn't hear total replacement. Okay. Anyway. So a hip resurfacing where there's no guarantee he would be able to even pick up a racket before Wimbledon. Effectively, yeah. and it's what Bob Bryan had, had got last year. Yeah. And so everybody's like, well, why doesn't he just sit it out and he can just play Wimbledon? Problem is, Andy Murray can't put on his socks and shoes. He can't chase after his girls. Walk his the, dogs? The thi- that hurt me the most during his press conference when he was like, I can't walk my dogs. Like, even the idea of it, I hate it. I hate the idea of it. And you know how much those dogs mean to him. So the fact that it's co- that the pain is so unbearable... That the idea of walking Maggie May and Rusty is like the last thing he wants to do. Like I was like, oh, honey, like go get the surgery. Basic quality of life. Quality stuff. of life. Basic, basic. Yeah, basic. like go get go get the surgery. Don't worry about Wimbledon. Who needs like, Wimbledon? Like, you don't honestly. need it. You can walk in a suit onto huh? the court and get an ovation. A lovely Sue Barker three minute interview. Amazing. Everyone will cry all over again. Hundred percent. It'll be great. It'd be great. You don't need to get your butt handed to you by. Probably Klon. Uh, Andre Rublev. Yeah, Rublev, good pick. Thanks. Oh, Klon. Also would work. I mean, a lot of people would beat him. What if it was Peter Polanski? <laughs> Lucky loser. <laughs> <laughs> Even from over, that's a bit insult to injury. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like, why risk it, you know? Yeah. So that's kind of the situation for Andy. But um, all in all, I mean, and I'm sure we'll have a full Andy Murray-thon once it is definitive that his career is done. And we can reflect and have Andy Murray moments and favorites. Maybe get and... that episode up. Oh, yeah. We do have all that audio from when we went to Dunblane, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. Um, but yeah, we should. Uh, yes. Yeah. Get, yes. No, I mean, it was, if this was the end, it was a good end. And yes. it's not, it's not. Certain. And I think he knows that. I, I'm hoping he realizes that. That's what, that's what I was saying after the night of the conditional tense, <laughs> where I was like, um, I think within like, 72 hours, Andy will look back and be like, wait, that was a really good ending. 
That's what I was hoping. Like, that he would have peace with that ending. Like, what is more Andy Murray? I remember thinking this as I was watching the match. Like, what is the best... What is a more Andy Murray ending than... He busted his butt. He tried so hard. He put it out on everything on the court. He worked. Like, everything was there. And it wasn't enough. On that day. But that... You know, and that's not my... That's not my personal view of his career I think I've, I've mentioned this to you before like I, I I think it's kind of weird to talk about Andy Murray's career in um co- in the context of where he stands with the other three as opposed to why was Andy Murray Andy Murray and Andy Murray wasn't Thomas Burdick or Ferrer or, or Ferrer Songa. or Songa or, or all of those guys yeah. he I do believe he is the people's champion I do believe he's the guy who was mortal chasing these superheroes and trying to bring them down. And he did a lot of times. But at the end of the day, what is what you should respect about Andy Murray is not this caveat of, okay, he wasn't the big three. He wasn't. And the big three are the big three for what they are. But the fact is, he set himself so far apart from the rest of the field of incredibly talented players for 10 years. And those players, those players that we celebrate, right? The, the Songas, the Ferrers, the Burdicks, these, the Delpos even... Like all the Vavrinkas, whatever, they didn't do what Andy Murray did. No. And that is where Andy Murray sits as like, you know, in the shadow of gods, but like thoroughly on top of like the mortals. The mortals. Yeah. Purgatory, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and again, what better tribute to Andy Murray than to, to end it on, on Purgatory? Purgatory, Andy Murray. I saw you went to his press conference. I did. It was the first ATP press conference I've gone to in years. What made you want to go in there? Well, I really wasn't going to go. And then I had come, I went to get coffee. <laughs> and the coffee room is right near the uh, the, mm-hmm. press, the, room, the yeah. press room, uh, the interview room. And I came out and I basically got swept in the wave of people walking into the room. I I couldn't literally swim swim against it. And Matt Trilope and uh, Michael Beatty and Alex Sharp were there, our good friends. And so I was like, oh, okay, I'll sit in the back with you guys. So we just. I saw you back. leaving there. I was like, oh. That's when it got to me again. I was like, all right, Courtney, shut up. Because you've always been like, because everyone who's seen, for, knows Four Deuce knows you. And we'll get into this again when it's, everything is Ride or die. official, official. But like, because you've always been very like keeping professional distance between you and Andy Murray. So that what you actually, when you went to his thing. And to be said, we haven't mentioned this, but like the WTA outpouring for him. Mm. The whole, which I group you into in your own way. Like the WTA outpouring for Andy Murray was profuse. And, it was profuse and yeah. well-earned, I, yeah. I have to say as well. And you know, it, it's it's a funny thing because this goes towards, if you haven't read John Wertheim's 50 parting shots from the Australian Open, you absolutely should. That is a must read every single year or every single slam. But um, but he, he makes a reference to how tennis needs a Mueller report and talking about conflicts of interest and blah, blah, blah. And it was making me think and, and kind of like, you know, the WTA, and genuinely, I had nothing to do with this outside of the content that I wrote specifically, but... The WTA kind of going out of their way, again, the first week of a slam or the lead up of a slam to devote resources to kind of like celebrating Andy and, and to kind of, you know, let him know, I suppose, mm-hmm. what the, the tour and what the players, what he's meant to the tour and the players was very much kind of like, we did it because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Like, here's a guy who, you know, and and stuff like that. And it was good to us. It was good, good to, to us. Yeah. And we, so it would be good to him. And it, it, 
and this was all kind of happening as like all of the ATP stuff was happening and you know ATP versus ATP cup whatever and where's the WTA in it and WTA you should stand up for yourself against the ATP and the ITF like all of this swirl of discussion was all this and I just remember thinking like you know we did it because it's the right thing to do and wouldn't it be nice if like that was what was the norm golden rule for all the federations to do what is right to do because I can virtually assure you that when Serena Williams retires there will not be an ATV, ATP video about it. Or even when Venus retires, let's say. There will or not. Or when other players who've won multiple more Grand Slams than Andy Murray. Yeah. You know, who's... We're who's, not, yeah. not going to get... As Maria Sharapo said, we don't get that love on the other side. And it's not... And therefore, it shouldn't be tit for tat. It's not, we do it because we think we're going to get you to do it. No, we do it because that's the right thing to do. You know, you... So it, it, but I just remember thinking about that. Just like it would be nice if part of Andy Murray's legacy was if people would just do the right thing. That'd be nice. That'd be nice. Yeah. Oh, oh, dare to dream. Well, see, I mean, like obviously there were like some very uh, disparate thoughts on equal prize money, even just between other members of the Big Four that came out in this. Like Roger was very supportive and, and buoyant on it, and Nadal, not so much. And it was, uh, and Djokovic, I don't think, got explicitly Was asked. Rafa not so much, or Rafa just like, I ain't talking about it? Um, no, Rafa was... Because I didn't read the transcript, but I saw some of the quotes floating around. It just seemed like he was abjuring himself. He was annoyed the by the question, first and foremost, but also... Like it was trying we, to get him in trouble. First of all, how wild is it that we use the word abjuring constantly? <laughs> Thanks, Tommy. <laughs> Thank you, Tommy. I think he was trying to stay out of trouble, but he also did not, certainly did not. He didn't back it. No, no. Which is, I mean, uh, yeah, I guess. I guess that's the flip side of like... If you think that your answer will get you into trouble, then I think we know what your answer is. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. But, you know, out of nowhere, uh, I mean, that's rude, out of nowhere, but like Sasha Zverev gave this like surprisingly effusive answer about equal prize money. Did he? Or about, um, yeah, about how like women and men being equal is one of the things you like most about tennis. It, it happened. It did happen. No, I it was, feel it was... bad about making fun of you, Sasha. No, I don't. But like, <laughs> make me, maybe in the future. I'll show you the answer. Timani and I were both in there. We were with like, because he went like above and beyond in this answer. We were with like, people should ask team. Yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's interesting. Milanovic. Yeah. No, I've heard that as a theory. Like people, the men who've had more of a connection to women's tennis, yeah. whether it's through their mothers like Andy or through whoever, like are more likely to be respectful. And that's something that maybe... Rafa hasn't had. Luka? There's there's no clear, there's no clear a connection to women's tennis in Rafa's whole career. I mean, he never played Hopman, he never played mixed, never has any women on his team. He has the some female family members too, but often sometimes sitting separately in the stadium. Yeah, so um, yeah, it's, inter- it's an interesting thing to sort of uh, audit sometimes. Women's yeah. finals longer, played more games. I only bring it up not because like equal. It's, uh... Anyway. Andy Murray, we salute you. We'll salute you again when the time comes. Yes, but in the we'll meantime, do a proper send off. But this is this. These are the raw, our, our early thoughts. Yeah. And with that, thank you very much, all of you, for listening to our raw thoughts on no challenges remaining. If you want to follow along, when you're not listening, do so on Twitter at ncr underscore tennis, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash ncr podcast. But Twitter is probably the better place to find us, honestly. Tennis emails too. That also works. No challenges remaining at gmail.com. I'll get back on the. Postcard horse when I get home February. Hopefully finish those up sooner rather than later for the remaining U.S. Open ones. And yeah, uh, right, Ray, thoughts, Courtney? 
Anything? Uh, I'm sure. I know yeah, a lot I got of two. I got two. I got two that I'll, I'll raise. First of all, shout out to the Australian Open for this very specific reason, which is um, as part of the media gift here, they gave these keep cups, these these plastic coffee cups to allow us to kind of reusable cups, obviously, mm-hmm. for the coffee and for if you wanted to use it for soda, like whatever you wanted. Um, and honestly, this is such a basic thing that they should just do across the board at all tournaments um, in terms of just being a give, give us something that isn't like a bicycle water bottle. Cause I'm not going to sit there as a writer and drink out of like a bike water bottle, um, you know, soda or water or anything. Yeah. But, but yeah, it was just like a nice, a nice gesture. I, th- I thought it was thoughtful. The recycling uh, push in Australia feels like when I was in middle school, like just kind of like, you know, it's a really big thing and let's keep the earth green and all that. Anyways, I thought it was a really good like media gift. I would like to see that at all four slams. And shout out to their coffee too. They have like best unlim- coffee, unlimited by far the best coffee of the slams. By far, like by, by far. a really significant margin. Yeah, and that's not to say it's good, but it's much better <laughs> than than ever, any other slam. I and the soda, co- I think it's and not the bad. soda machine. I get a lot of lattes. I'm happy. Oh, I don't mind. I the, their black coffee is perfectly good. Yeah, I mean it's like I would go here, U.S. Open, the French. You have to pay. So it's always going to be good, but you have to pay for it. Yeah. Uh, but I would probably put the U.S. Open and then like literally at Wimbledon, the I Wimbledon never drink coffee. Wimbledon workroom coffee is disgusting. I, I just drink tea. Ugh. It's, it's the Wimbledon beverage situation is so bad. It's rough. With the Robinsons. Oh, that's weird. Just yeah. give me cold water. I just want cold water. Not so much to ask. It's rough. You have to like beg for water. Can I please have can a bottle say, of Evian? Like, can I please have water? They always say yes, but you have to ask for it. <laughs> It's very all of her twist. Please, sir, can I have some more? Can I have some Evian? <laughs> anyway, so so big ups to the to, to Ao with the the reusable cups. Like I, it meant a lot. Weirdly, I I just I every time I went to get a cup of coffee, I was like realizing like that's another cup of like paper cup that I'm not using. So it's great and it's a nice souvenir. So that's one. Secondly, as Ben knows, much time has been spent during this fortnight playing this board, this card game called Sinlinks. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend it to people. It's available on Amazon.com. Um, I got it before I, I left for Australia and I brought it over because it's very portable. Basically, it's a card, bo- it's a box full of like a list of movies, directors, actors, on quotes on cards. And you basically play with like two or more people and you connect like the cards to each other. So like if I if the card on the table is the Godfather and you're holding a card that is Bradley Cooper or no, let's say um or okay, uh Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah. And the card on the board is is what I say the Godfather. So you're sitting there trying to connect them both. So you're like, "Okay, well, in the Godfather was Al Pacino. Al Pacino was in uh I always get Pacino confused weirdly. Uh, was in The Devil's Advocate with Keanu Reeves. <laughs> Keanu Reeves was in. Anyways, you guys get yeah. the point. You you make the chain and you try to connect them. Anyways, it was fun. It was fun. Anyway. Ben Ben got into it. He was a little like skeptical at first, but he got really into it. Because like we were playing with you and our friend David and. It was like you guys have like are very specific on your one sort of movies that you do. Whereas I am like I know everything that was at Blockbuster in the nineties, which is the greatest thing because like I will be sitting there being like, and then Scorsese directed this movie, which starred. It's very and I'll be like, like Olympia Dukakis was in yeah. Mucko's talking, 
Luke's Talking also featured, you know, John Travolta, who was Ben's go to uh, movie is Drop Dead Gorgeous, which is like his hub. Like, if he can connect it to Drop Dead Gorgeous, he's good. He can connect it to anyone. It's great. It's basically Six Degrees with Kevin Bacon, but like. And you can get form. to Kevin Bacon easily because oh, easily. from Drop Dead Gorgeous because Drop Dead Gorgeous, Denise Richards, Denise Richards, Wild Things, Wild Things, all of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> all 11 inches of Kevin Bacon, yes. Oh, but, God. Uh, too much Kevin Bacon. <laughs> too much Kevin Bacon. Um, but yes, it yeah. was, it's a really fun game. And so for those who are looking for board game recommendations and if you're a cinephile, if you're a movie, and it's not super nerdy. It's like there's a lot of pop culture, like Hollywood, like you don't have a problem with it. And although you you watch a lot of the like nerdy stuff as well, I could never do directors. Like if I pull the director yeah. out of the deck, like even like someone who's like a A list director, like Guillermo del Toro, I'm right back in there. Yeah, yeah. del Toro, whatever. No, not happening. But yeah, so recommend it, and it's been fun. It's been a good way to like come back to the hotel, unwind, play for like a couple two 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 and a half hours until we all go to sleep at like three or four in the morning. It's good. Yeah, I will do my uh, quick. Also, Australian Open related rave for Dylan Alcott, who oh, yeah. was very great and generous with his time and everything. Who's been a very cool sort of story to latch onto at this tournament and a like phenomenon here. He is everywhere at this tournament. He is on like pretty much every commercial break during the tennis, doing his ads for ANZ on Channel Nine. He's also Channel Nine commentator. He's also yeah won he's the hilarious. won the he's quad thing. He's he's a really funny guy. He's like a radio DJ like mm-hmm. during oh, really? when he's not yeah when he's not um, a radio host. On he was Dude, on so Triple much J. Energy. Yeah. And just like constantly just like, and anyway, that, that Tennis Australia and that Tennis in Australia, which are separate things, have like done this great job, including him and celebrating him. It's been very cool to see. And he is gen- like walking around the grounds with him. He would like get swarmed He's constantly. A He's a complete rock star. And people just like That's turn awesome. at him, turn and look at him and look so happy. I've never seen people look this happy in my life. <laughs> but it was like, it was like oh, Tennis for me. Like, like Everyone just like, you know walking a lot just like he's such a positive force and so popular here and hopefully he can get some recognition or celebration or notice that when he comes to new york for the us open later mm-hmm. this year would, would love to see him get like i have no connection to these things but onto like some talk shows or something he'd be yeah. so good at that yeah and uh yeah anyway it was cool to see him here and he wanted to get his book fish. i did get his book his book's okay, really you, good you also i will also book, plug yeah. the book yeah i bought the book in perth uh, i got a ebook version of it but it was like i was i was being stupid with my kindle and was reading in landscape and it was frustrating me um, but then I eventually figured out how to change that, but then I just bought it anyway. Books also rate rant. Books are too expensive in Australia. Way too expensive. It is unbelievable. There's like a literacy tax here that really frustrates me. It really is. Like I went to a, D, uh, a DVD store. And they most, still have those? Yeah, here. And most of the DVDs, even new, were like so shockingly cheap compared to the books here. Mm. Some of it is a lot of it is just like imported in and... Like the right, the region. That's like the thing. It was an Australian book. Really made in, I'm sure this book was printed in Australia. Oh, this yeah. Dylan Alcott book. Like it's not like I'm trying to buy like you know, I don't know, um, Gone Girl or something. That's right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Import. No, I'm sure they had printing presses here for a long time. Like it was weird to me. And so the book was like forty dollars yeah. Australian Dylan's oh. book, which is like thirty two U S, which is too much. That's too much. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I remember you and I have talked about this. Like the first time that I came to Australia, one of the biggest. Um, um, I guess take not takeaways, but just like I was really surprised by, was just how at the time it's different now, but at the time it was really hard to find bookstores. They weren't as prevalent as I felt that they should be in 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 major cities. And then when I went in, I looked at like the stick. I was like always like suffering sticker shock. Like I just couldn't believe how much books cost, and that was like that kind of bummed me out. 
I was like, if you're not, if you're not making, if you're, I mean, the government, if that, if that's the case, the government should subsidize the books because y'all need to read. Like yeah. that's important. Especially <laughs> with all the trash reality TV that yeah. is offered, especially on Channel Nine, seeing all those ads for whatever what Australia's most confident bride. Yeah, she seems terrible. But at the same time, I hate this woman being villainized constantly at me. I'm trying to enjoy tennis. Like, I don't want to, like, put all this, like, you know, not even casual, like, active misogyny into my tennis. We have enough of it out there already. Yeah, there's some show about... Let the bride be confident! She's, she's, she's very... How would you describe her outside of confident? Bug-eyed. Oh, yeah, she... <laughs> but also, I mean, but she's, she's a crazy reality TV lady, but she's on there constantly. And it's just, like, we don't have anything that's, like... We have, obviously, there are shows, some of which I've very fully enjoyed. I watched Flavor of Love, you know, it was great. But it wasn't like the same person being mocked on well, like free to air TV constantly. It, it, it's just it's, different. It's, it's the balance, right? I mean, the, the I remember when I was texting you about this, like where, like what? Because again, totally agree. Most of the the TV evening coverage or e- evening shows that I see are mostly like reality TV and like kind of exploitative reality, yeah, not totally. like Project Runway style reality. Like it's like let's laugh at these crazy people reality which I, I is a genre that i cannot stand it's it's for me very like I, I will not watch it but like what i was telling ben was where what what is their 30 rock what is their parks and rec what is their good place what is their you know west wing what is their like what are their shows that they okay you can have all that but you have to balance it with like the smart stuff they have some i mean I, i'm not an expert on showing culture because we're here during the summer when like nothing Oh, that's their a good prestige point. TV is on. I think it's part of it, but I, I have watched Summer Heights High, and think, which is great. Which is great, but well, there's not that much of it. That's like yeah. watching Brooklyn Nine Nine. Like it's not like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. It, it's still I don't know. The, what is what is Australian prestige television? Is my prestige, question. You know, get like Nanette maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Nanette. Yeah. It's on Netflix. It's different, but it is Australian. But I will say Australian Netflix. Better. V better than American Netflix. Yeah, they get rights to so many better movies. Than I just American I does. wish that I could stay like an extra week here and just like home <laughs> like just Howard Hughes it and just like sit in my hotel room and order <laughs> Uber Eats from Stalactites and just like watch Australian Netflix and just catch up on life. Tonight I will be eating gluten free dumpling with <laughs> brown toast. <laughs> I can't. It sounds like he's saying brown toast. Brown toast. Brown toast. Brown toast. It literally took me six six listens to realize, oh, he said prawn toast. Which also, what the hell is that? <laughs> prawn toast. Brown toast. And with that, thank you very much for listening to NCR from the Australian Open. We'll be back to you in due course. <laughs> Bye, guys. Ciao. <laughs> we got there in the end. Yeah. <laughs>